I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And we are very pleased to announce that our guest today is Peter Goodgame, the author of Red Moon Rising, one of our favorite guests. Yes. And through the hard work and efforts of Johnny, the longshoreman, he's going to be with us. Yep. Let's get to it. we got to go. Uh, we'll come back to talk in detail, but until then, here is one of our show favorites, Peter Goodgame. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And I have to say, it is wonderful to have the beloved and legendary Peter Goodgame back to our show. I feel like we should trumpet the uh, return. Do, 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 do. Yeah, he, like he's our sound effect guy, Peter. <laughs> Peter, it's great to have you back here, buddy. Hey, uh, it's good to be here. Oh, everybody's thrilled to hear your voice. The rumors of your demise are greatly exaggerated. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't gone anywhere, but I, I have been in hiding. Okay. But I'm back. Okay. Well, most of our longer-term listeners adore your work. And, in fact, many of our listeners have found out about Future Quake having already been Peter Goodgame fans. Uh, it appears that some of our most loyal fans are people who came via being uh, groupies of Peter Goodgame. So I want to say thank you to all of you all out there. Um, even though you have been in sort of an enigmatic seclusion for about a year, uh, this is your historic ninth visit on the show. And our first in the new format. What do you think about that, Peter? That's uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's, that that firmly that is, a, that is an honor to be the, one of the most uh, sought after guests on Future Quake. I expect you that to put great. that stat on the back of your new books that you come out in the future. Okay. Yep. As, yep. as one of the feathers in your hat uh, that right. puts you firmly. I wear it proudly. Okay. <laughs> well, you're you're firmly in second place in the all-time guest list. So. Okay. Um, and you have lots of competition with some others, but you're, you're pulling away. Uh, we would be remiss in not mentioning, however, that your visit today can be attributed to the diligent efforts of what I call the persistent widow of the Bible, our loyal listener, Johnny the Longshoreman yeah. in Oregon. And we tip our hat to you, Johnny. Thanks, Bob. All right, Johnny. Yeah. Who, who applied, and you, you tell me if I'm wrong here, Peter, who applied c consistent pressure for your return back to Future Quake. Yeah, he uh, he really twisted my arm and and threatened, and uh, so he, he did what it took. <laughs> that's he, right. He, he brought my voice back. He said I needed to get my gums flapping, so that's what I'm going to do today. Well, we send we send out our missives, our yeah. our our people, our our henchmen, uh, yeah. our goons out to you have uh, your ways. He's sort of like thugs. sort of yes. like our lurch, you know. He just sort of carried you back to the Future <laughs> Quake show. But uh, Johnny, thank you so much. We sure appreciate it. Uh, to save our time t uh, tonight, I'm going to refer our newer listeners to listen to the vast archive of Peter Goodgame shows at futurequake.com, which our, our friend uh, uh, Tom, Tom has been listening to. I was, trying to. I was trying to review all of them today at work until my boss 
decided Ooh. that wasn't a good idea and sent me, <laughs> sent me back into the mines. If I was you, I would have threatened him to fire you instead of stop listening to Peter Goodgame. Believe me, the thought crossed my mind. Go ahead, fire me. I'm listening to Peter Goodgame. Yeah. Particularly if it was the legendary show 60. That is the one who's changed people's lives. You know, lives. I, think I, had, I think I had made it on to, like, the second hour of 60. Is that right? And that's when he called. He said, hey there, Egyptologist. Huh. Why don't you come back down here? Wow. Oh. Well, you know, uh, the Peter Goodgame interview, Show 60 on Future Quake, has actually been inscribed in a golden disc on one of the Pioneer missions that's going out across the solar system. Wow. I don't know if you knew that, Peter. Um, okay. Well, uh, they need to go listen. Our listeners find out more about your background as well as to read your groundbreaking book, Red Moon Rising, uh, which opened up a whole new dimension of prophetic research. Uh, certainly one of the top one or two most important prophecy books I have ever read as Dr. Future. And you introduced a, a new school of prophetic study that explores a six-seal prophetic model, a six-seal rapture prophetic model. Uh, since, since I brought this subject up, which is a whole big kettle of fish, uh, could you describe the elements of this new prophetic model that you proposed in your popular book and why you think Scripture best supports it and what kind of feedback you've received regarding the book since its publication? I know yeah, it's very well, complicated. We could do a, a string of shows on it, but just a little introduction. And for some of our listeners who come from a very, very conventional um, uh, Tim LaHaye-ish, uh, sure. Hal Lindsey-type view of things that are devoted to prophecy – look things in that paradigm, I ask you to keep an open mind during this discussion because it's based on Scripture. It's based on uh, trying to be faithful to the consistency of God's Word, and it will open up some very interesting vistas for you, each of you to study and draw your own conclusions from. So, Peter, could you share with us a little bit about it? Yeah, well, I, I've studied all kinds of different uh, prophetic models, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, uh, post-trib, trib, trib. pre-wrath, you know, uh, pan-trib, whatever, uh, but uh, what I just saw is that uh, everybody seemed to uh, use uh, man-made. Uh, uh, they, they had a design based on, based on, for instance, the seven-year tribulation, mm-hmm. and that is it is an important uh, key to understanding scripture. But they they took that uh, key and they wrapped everything around that. But the point is that uh, that Jesus never referred to a seven-year tribulation. Paul didn't refer to a seven-year tribulation. The book of Revelation does not explicitly refer to a seven-year tribulation. Um, so what I just tried to do is try now, to... Now, to accept, clarify, thing, there is a 70 week, 70th week. 70th week. There is yes. a 70th week of Daniel. Yeah, People automatically tie that to a seven-year tribulation as being sure. coincident. Yeah. But you yeah. take a little bit more precise and careful... Well, I just... I Since they didn't... Uh, since Jesus didn't teach Bible prophecy revolving it around that term, I didn't think it was best for us to try and understand Bible prophecy, you know, by by latching on to that term and trying to immediately define where it mm-hmm. begins, ends, and, and what happens in it, you know, in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Jesus uh, taught prophecy based on his, you know, knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, and of course his, his you know, his own revelations. Um but what what he consistently referred to is the day of the Lord. Right. Okay. That's that's just a term that he used. That's it, the time period of judgment at the end of the age. As well as used considerably in the Old Testament as well. That, yes. Right. And you know Jesus quoted from Old Testament prophecies of from Isaiah in in several day of the Lord passages. So mm-hmm. that was that was the term that he that he taught from, and that was that was the 
understanding that he taught from. And he didn't, you know, he taught new stuff, but he based it on what what had been revealed by Old Testament prophets. He just clarified things. And then Paul really just uh, taught the same thing. That Jesus that taught the Olivet Discourse um, in Matthew uh, 24, 25, um, and in and in Mark 13 and Luke 21, uh, Paul really taught the, the same thing in Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter five. It's simply the very same things that Jesus said. He he reframed it in his own terms. Um, so the day of the Lord is key. When does the day of the Lord begin in the book of Revelation? That's what that's what uh, that's what I sought to discover. And I and I really found that there's there is overwhelming evidence that that begins that the, the end times period of judgment begins with the opening of the sixth seal of Revelation. So that's why I call it the sixth seal model. Okay. So in other words, this means that the five previous seals have either uh, been opened already, and we're in that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've gone through those kinds of things, or it, you know, it's going to happen soon. Well, so and, that's and, the basics and, of. And correct me if I'm wrong, because this is not a show dedicated to this entirely, and <clears throat> I recommend everybody just keep enough open mind to read your book and ponder it. Uh, and also read some other people who've written other works that are also based on that model, since you did it, like uh, David Lowe's work, Earthquake, Resurrection, Then His Voice Shook the Earth. Uh, there's a Pastor John Abit who's written consistent yes. with this. Yes. Also, Doug Berner has written a book right. uh, about this. Right. But now, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things that was really intriguing to me is that you appeared to look at similarities of events in the Bible, like physical conditions that are going on, events in the sky and on the ground. And you saw similarity between what's described in the sixth seal, what's described in the Gog-Magog conflict, and also some possibilities of what happens at the time of the rapture. And so Mm -hmm. you you proposed a hypothesis that they may all be coincident, that they all occur at the same time. It it all dovetails together. It does. And this is the thing. uh, In in your popular pre-trib models, you have a gradual buildup. Uh, the day of the Lord begins gradually, almost imperceptibly, and mm-hmm. and it slowly builds up in intensity. But that's not what the Bible teaches about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, and this is what I've found, is that the day of the Lord both begins and ends with a major global catastrophe. Mm-hmm. There is no mistake. When the day of the Lord begins, there is no mistake. The whole world knows it. The right. whole world is affected yeah, the by it. The kings of the earth say that, that the Absolutely. day of the Lord's wrath has come. That's right. Seal. That's right. Uh, I, I have to tell you that when I considered that and was willing to just at least entertain the idea, looking at Scripture, things amazingly began to fall into place. Very complicated Scriptures uh, suddenly yep. didn't conflict each other anymore, and things yep. made tremendous sense again to me. And what it also did was open all sorts of new vistas for new ways to interpret uh, certain things like the other seals, which I right. won't go into great detail right. here, but it's right. worthy of showing of itself. Now, an- another thing, and this is something that I have yet to write about. Maybe I'll maybe I'll cover it in a future book. But with this with this model in mind, then the fulfillment of the fall feasts of Israel makes sense because the coming of the first coming of the Messiah fulfilled all of the spring feasts. Now, the fall feasts have yet to be prophetically fulfilled, and, and they are uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And you can see those feasts fulfilled explicitly in Revelation, tying in with the sixth seal as being the beginning of the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. In fact, and, uh, I, and I, right. I have written about that recently in in some articles on on my website, Red Moon Rising. People can go mm-hmm. there and just look up where I talk about, for instance, the Feast of Tabernacles. Right. In fact, uh, don't you have an article called something like "Perfecting the Pre-Trib Rapture" or something to that effect? Too? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so a lot of pre-tribbers out there who immediately think they're going to change the channel or scoff. Uh, you may be surprised to find out that Peter's model gives you some of the most ammunition you're looking for uh, in your study of Scripture right now. But you, you just got to let go of a, of a couple of sacred cows that are held so dear in, in interpretation. That, right. Uh, that, that just don't make sense and have to be have to be tossed. And you're not asking them to let go of the Bible mm-hmm. or the inerrancy of God's Word or anything like that. It's just a little fresh look at uh, some of the events that occur without inheriting something from the past, looking at something that is, is a little more consistent with this. Um, yeah. I, I find it fascinating. Now, when you mention those feasts, uh, just briefly comment because I want to move on our discussion. Uh, there was a group formed uh, of with the gentleman that I just mentioned earlier. Uh, several of them have also been on our show in the past, as well as you. Uh, a six-seal uh, sort of a discussion group online. Right. And right. there were some of the, the deepest, most intelligent study of God's Word and prophecy that I have ever read anywhere. I mean, very deep, well-researched, really insightful, inspired comments on it. And something that I noticed that came out of that that I I want to mention, the sixth seal is very, very important to your model and what you do. But the seventh seal is also very critical in that because if I understand this correctly, you tie the the actions of the seventh seal, like pouring the incense on the altar and things like that, that that's unmistakable, the hallmarks of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That is the the heavenly fulfillment of, of the earth's, you know, final ultimate Day of Atonement. So if I understand this correctly, we're almost seeing in Revelation a kind of cosmic Day of Atonement. Of yes. which what they do now is a foreshadowing, yes. you know. And all of this, what we talk about uh, before the Day of Atonement, uh, like the uh, uh, the Feast of Trumpets, and the ability, you know, to forego the uh, uh, the Day of Atonement because we've had our atonement on the cross for That's those right. who are brought to Christ. Been paid for. We we have no part in, in believers have no part in in the end times in the end times Day of Atonement because we've we've already uh, experienced our. Uh, uh, through Christ, vicariously through Christ, Absolutely. but but the the Jewish people, those who are, uh, those who seek the Lord and those who who are brought back to Him, they will experience the final day of atonement. And those days, those seven days, uh, whatever the the key part of the day of atonement, were days for people to get their lives right before the books were closed at the end, in which they were doomed for the year. And that really is a perfect foreshadowing of the description of the book of Revelation, is that they have those seven years to get their life squared you know, squared away. And there's much more detail. It fits much more detail than what I'm giving. I just want to encourage our listeners that I'm scratching the surface of what you'll find the treasure uh, in this approach, and all sorts of things will come to you. And uh, I just want to thank you, Peter, for being... Uh, uh, brave enough and to have the initiative and your incredible writing style to put that landmark book out. Well, change you, a, change I, a lot of our lives. Well, I'm, I'm lucky enough to, I have nothing to lose. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I haven't gone to seminary. I don't have, you know, college professors to please. I don't have a, a, a specific church denomination whose teachings I have to uphold. I just, I get to, do what I love best is simply, you know, read the word and and ask God to help me understand it, and then, and then write about it and see if other people agree. So you don't have a world ministry center with a big globe, crystal globe outside or anything. Uh, a lot no, of, and I don't a lot have a, you know, I don't even have like a DVD teaching series and and self help books and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, gosh, I what is, that. Yeah, what does your staff do then? I mean, <laughs> yeah, you <know? laughs> yeah, you're extensive. Extensive staff. Yeah, that's certainly not what I see from a lot of the other authors out there that uh, 
basically are pushing the same ideas and thoughts of 20 years ago without adding to their research further. And that's where Peter and his uh, his ilk uh, stand apart from the rest of the crowd, in my opinion, in Bible prophecy research. Uh, moving on, there's a... Uh, there's another key topic uh, on your website, and I, I just want to cover that quickly and then move on to some new discussions mm-hmm. that, that I found, to me, uh, equally uh, cataclysmic to uh, Redmond Rising, and that is a writing that you did. It's really basically become book size now, but you yeah. can click it online called The Giza Discovery, and it starts very, very innocently with some things yeah. that some uh, archaeologists have been finding recently around the Great Pyramid, and then you tie together this overarching world history uh, with some, some maverick archaeologists that are now well-respected, tying together Mesopotamia to uh, Egypt. And yeah. uh, I know some of the details of this we're going to cover in some of the questions the rest of this interview. So if you could just give us a very quick general understanding of this so we can understand some of the questions later without giving away too much later. Can yeah. you give us just yeah. a very basic understanding of what your premise was? Well, in the Giza discovery, like you say, I start off without any kind of uh, religious agenda or anything. In, in the beginning of my series, I'm simply uh, I'm, I'm going into ancient mythology and ancient history, and I'm trying to dig up, uh, you know, what actually took place way back when. I try to go after the, the the historical root of the spiritual battle that is taking place right now for this world, and I do that by uh, going back to Egypt, which is very important, but also going back even farther to ancient Sumer, and they were the very first civilization to invent writing, and and luckily enough, they wrote on cuneiform tablets that they baked, so these things have survived, and only in the past couple centuries have they been unearthed and unearthed and deciphered. But uh, the story that they tell about mankind's beginnings is very similar to the Book of Genesis, but there are uh, there's a certain twist to it. There's a certain twist to their story, because their story, because these people were pagans, and they worshipped, you know, the gods, the very same gods that the Israelites were told that they were forbidden to worship. So it seems that they have, they have, they're, they're talking about the same history, but they have a different perspective on it. So I go, I go really deep into that, and uh, in the end, it, it does have very profound implications in Bible prophecy, and it perfectly dovetails with... Uh, with the prophetic model of, of my six-seal uh, model that that I write about in Red Moon Rising. Well, I don't know if we want to go uh, deeper into that just now, but, uh, but yeah, you know what, that that whole series at the beginning, it's, it's long, and if you're, if you're very religious-minded, you might be turned off to it from the beginning because I'm talking about ancient mythology, and I'm treating it as having a basis in fact, and, and some people are scared of that, but we shouldn't well, be. We have many guests like Tom Horn and others who show that some yeah. of these mythological records are shadows. Well, I think, Tom Horn has, yeah. I think Tom Horn has done a great job of breaking down the barriers that, you know, that might be there mm-hmm. that limit people's you know, ability to, to go after this kind of thing and try and learn new things from it. Who's a, who, he's a pastor in, in high regard, good credentials, uh, goodness, theology, and doctrine. And, and, and what, you, what you're saying and mentioning this is not to replace or supplant uh, the Bible record, like some kind of New Age kind of approach, no. what, what, what you're showing is that, if anything, it just gives yet further authentication, although we, we accept the Bible by faith regardless of evidence. You have further evidence that the kind of events that are talked about in the Bible also have foreshadowing in other secular texts with yeah. their own spin on it. Yeah. And, and, in fact, if they weren't there, 
one would scratch their head while they aren't there. To, to me, if anything, it's it was expected, and it sort of reinforces my faith that this is legitimate, that yeah. these were real events that happened in real time in history. But what's interesting is that the writers, just like we, we uh, had an, uh, a story recently on our news segment about um, the bias in the news, uh, Internet versus mainstream media and things, and there was bias in the writings back in those days. Sure. Uh, sure, yeah, and uh, you have to look at whoever uh, – in fact, my talk before the United Nations, uh, we get, went into that a lot. Uh, what was the inherent bias of the person who was delivering the message? Uh, for example, the whole event in the garden. Who were the good guys? Yeah. Who were the bad guys? And this right. became a major theme of the presentation I gave at the United Nations. And that presentation is online at the front of futurequake.com. I recommend people go to that. But the key discussion about what happened in Samaria – and the origins and how that birthed out the world's mythology and religions, uh, that came from Peter Goodgame's work. So I highly recommend everybody go read the Giza Discovery. Uh, I warn you, you'll be stuck there for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you may end up like uh, Brother Tom here, you know, and the boss has to come grab yeah. you. Yeah. Like no more, no more, no more red moon rising. But uh, get to get back down and get comfortable, get a good cup places. of coffee, and dig into it. Uh, I think we'll, we will flesh out some of the details in the remaining questions we have, Peter, and you can elaborate with some, you know, further findings that you've had since you wrote that. Dr. Future of the Future Quake Show. And I'm Tom Bionic, also of the Future Quake Show. And what you just heard uh, was a excerpt from Carnival of Souls by Combustible Edison, one of the classic songs we used to play on the original Future Quake Show on yeah. WRFN. And if you wonder why it's on there, uh, I had to make one of those smoke-filled room, backroom deals with Johnny the Longshoreman, <laughs> who misses the music for meditation from our show in the past. And he said if he played just a little bit of Carnival of Souls, uh, he'd really appreciate that. And I just appreciate a guy out there who appreciates my weird taste in music. And it made me sort of nostalgic. Hmm. I had a little tear in Dr. Future's eye. Really? No, I oh, thought that I might miss... have been from your side hurting. Well, that too. I have this <laughs> whatever it is in my yeah. side. At the time of this recording, uh, uh, I think Dr. Future is laying is laying host to some sort of space alien eggs yeah, or something. I hope it's not posthumous aside. when this finally airs. Yeah. You will carry on the show, won't you? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, anyway, I want to thank you again, Johnny the Longshoreman, listening out there in Oregon, uh, walking hundreds of feet above the Columbia River with your headset on, listening to Future Quake out in the foggy mist in the nighttime. Um, makes a perfect atmosphere for listening to Future Quake. And uh, hopefully we'll have you a new show here to replace Show 60 with Peter Goodgame in the past. That you mm-hmm. you can wear out and say hey to all your longshoremen friends out mm-hmm. there too. Um, what did you think about our first segment? You know, I this is your first face to face with Peter. Yeah, Gingham, right? yeah, and I've you know through you through you I've, through you informally I've 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 become familiar with some of his work and you know I I bought his book a little while ago I've been mm-hmm. kind of going through it I end I keep getting sidetracked so it ends up being like half a chapter and then something happens I got to dedicate my time to something else but. Uh, truly fascinating. No. Uh, really, his really his pr- prophetic model. I don't, I don't think you can call it completely. It's 
it's as if you took pre you know the the pre-trib idea and the pre-wrath idea the best of both worlds and kind of brought them together well you know really he doesn't really even so much go into the minutia of the well i won't speak for peter but what i recollect mm-hmm. in the minutia of all the deal i mean it put it this way it can accommodate a uh pre uh a pre uh trib mm-hmm. belief yeah, it can accommodate when, wherever you put the, it's according to wherever you put the sixth seal. If you put the sixth seal before the seventieth week of Daniel, it's still by definition pre-trib. If you want to make it a pre-wrath, it can accommodate that as well too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's various things. So um, what it focuses on, what I think, is one of the real breakthroughs is it focuses on the term in the Bible called the Day of the Lord, mm-hmm. and it uses it as a linchpin to be able to try to figure out how everything falls in place. And you have more data with that because there's a lot of data in the Old Testament on the Day of the Lord. And uh, he he uses some hypotheses in the book uh, about how certain things, like uh, circumstances surrounding the rapture, description of physical mm-hmm. events, the um, Gog-Magog war mm-hmm. and Ezekiel, uh, the sixth seal. And you find some identical things going on. Yeah. And so he starts with the supposition, what if they are coincident? And well, from there, things start to fall into place. Well, the thing that really did it for me uh, was, you know, I've been reading the book and uh, in my Bible studies, stumbled across Joel 2.31. that said, in the day of the Lord, the uh, the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn blood red. Yep. I thought, whoa. Just like the sixth seal. Holy moholy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Was that in there? I don't remember. Was that in the Septuagint? The holy uh, moholy? It's, it's Yeah. <laughs> that could have been Aram- 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 right Aramaic. Oh, yeah. maybe. Well, anyway, we we're going to need to go. Uh, it's we've already uh, chatted. Wow, wow, so that was fast. Yeah, I know. Uh, we need to bring Merv in. Merv, could you come in and tell our listeners how they can get a hold of us here, at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we need to wrap up in a few seconds. Folks, we've been listening to Peter Goodgame. Be here. Uh, he'll be here all week. Until then, I hope your future is very bright. Yeah, and enjoy it. You'll love it with Peter Goodgame. If you miss anything, go to futurequake.com. Till then, take care, and we'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Mahalo. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And we're back with our second installment of our interview with Peter Goodgame. Yes. The author of Red Moon Rising. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about recent developments and findings on the second coming of the Antichrist mm-hmm. and the end of the age. You know, I think he's got like the ultimate the ultimate cool existence. He gets to study all this neat stuff and biblical prophecy and he gets to hang out in Hawaii. Yeah, so it's got nice weather. Nice and got surf. Nice weather. It's like 20 degrees outside Who right now. You have time to surf. You, you, <laughs> you would have time to surf. How awesome! How awesome is it that I raised my hand on radio? Yeah. <laughs>
how can you find time for stuff like this anymore? Things yeah, just seem yeah. so busy. I, yeah. you know, yeah. to me, you you have a very busy life. I don't I know, know how you do it. You know, we rave over these great locales and stuff like that. And of course, it is beautiful in Hawaii, but mm-hmm. you know, he works hard. He does builds homes. Yep, uh, family. Has family. very busy with his family. I bet you he doesn't have much time to out there and just. Fun and sun. Well, you never know. That's the reality of life. Yeah. But still would be nice to be there. I think we should all go there for a prophecy conference. I'm cool with that. Yeah. Maybe he could hold us up. I think his home's like 800 square feet or something like that. So. Well, the, yeah, real estate, is. I think, is expensive. It's absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. So. Yeah. Well, hey, I guess we need to go to Let's the second installment. Let's get on into it. And then we'll have some time to talk about it. So until then, here's Peter Goodgame, and we'll be right back to discuss it on Future Quick. Um, part of the title of our interview tonight... Uh, relates to the second coming of the Antichrist, which is probably a quite provocative concept to some of our sure. listeners. That's right. Uh, how do we know the Antichrist was here before, historically, and that it will be his second coming when we see him as we expect? Because I just think that's what the book of Revelation very plainly teaches and is confirmed in other texts. Uh, uh, if we go to the book of Revelation, let, let's talk about how the, the Antichrist is introduced uh First in Revelation chapter 13, you, you have the appearance of this uh, seven-headed beast that comes out of the sea, okay? And one of these heads of the beast uh, is wounded, is, is dead, in fact, is dead. And then it says that, uh, it says that this, that this uh, head is healed of a deadly wound. So uh, right there we have uh, evidence of, of death and resurrection. Um, this seven-headed beast is further explained in Revelation chapter 17, and it talks about uh, it is introduced simply as as referring to the Antichrist himself, saying the beast which you saw once was now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. Mm-hmm. So the Antichrist, as a per, as a figure, as a person who rises up in the end, he is someone when when the Book of Revelation was written, he is someone who once was, now is not. When he comes again, he will come up out of the abyss. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's pretty it's, explicit. Uh, it's pretty explicit. It's pretty ex- explicit. Um, there's this. There's a modern modern day prof- prophetic teaching is that uh, we have the seven year tribulation. We have a midpoint of the seven year tribulation, and there's there's a, a belief in a revived Roman Empire. The thing is, there's no empire that's revived. It's a person that's revived. Then there's this erroneous teaching that the Antichrist himself will be killed at the midpoint of the 70th week and then immediately resurrected, being, um, you know, resurrected with uh, being fully uh, possessed by Satan. Um, This guy is already possessed. But the thing is, dead already. He's dead right now. When he comes up out of the abyss, uh, that's that's referring to his resurrection. And he and he arrives on the scene fully demon, fully satan, satanic possessed. Mm-hmm. He's he's the literal son of Satan. Okay. And, and so you're referring to the fact when you uh, coming up out of the abyss, that same passage about the beast that the woman rides on. Yes. Is said it, he he has all the hallmarks of what we know as Antichrist with the with the seven heads and things like yes. that. But it says he comes up out of the abyss. Yes, that's that's very explicit. He comes up out of the abyss. There's actually. Three different beasts that are referred to in Revelation. You have a beast that comes out of the sea, which is the, referring to the, the to the one world government, which the Antichrist, the individual, will inherit. Then you have the beast that comes out of the earth, which is the false prophet, who you know is a spiritual leader, a spiritual authority who causes the world to worship. You know, he he points the world to worship at the Antichrist. And then you have the the beast who comes out of the abyss, and that is the Antichrist himself. But uh, 
but now this is this is what it says in in uh in revelation thirteen let's see here it says uh, one of the beasts one of the heads of the beasts seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed and it says and the wound of it in Greek in Greek the literal transliteration is and the wound of its death was healed now let's see it's in the n i v you have this word seemed so some people think it, we have a we have a fake assassination mm. and, and you know, m- making the world think that he comes back to life. Sort of like the Antichrist wound theory. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in Revelation 13, it talks about how the world will be astonished when the fatal wound is healed. Right. And you have the same thing repeated in Revelation chapter 17. It says, let me just read the full uh, verse 8 from that chapter. It says, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, mm-hmm. and yet will come. It repeats it several times. This beast once was, now is not, and yet will come. So to reinforce your point, they're astonished not over the fact that he had some mortal head wound, but the fact that, I mean, to me it's pretty clear, because that same passage was used talking about older kings that had passed. So right. when that same right. phrase is used there, they're yeah. astonished because he is a king that presumably some of the people recognize. Well, yeah, let me continue in that figure. Let me continue in that passage where where it goes on. It says this calls for a mind with wisdom, and then it talks about the seven heads or seven hills on which the woman sits. That's that's a separate interpretation. We're not going to go into that. And then it says these uh, these seven heads are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. Now it says, the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. Now some people teach that there's going to be eight kings, eight separate individuals. That's simply not true because Revelation 13 describes a seven-headed beast. There's only seven. There's only seven kings. And again, they're, they're kings. They're not kingdoms. So many prophecy teachers go out there and they just switch kings for kingdoms. There's a very big difference. You know, a kingdom doesn't come out of the abyss. A kingdom doesn't revive. It's a king that comes out of the abyss, a king that revives. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when it says this this beast, the specific beast who is the antichrist, once was and now is not, that means let's look at these seven. There's five that have fallen that are in the past, one that presently existed, perhaps uh, Nero or Domitian. Okay, at the time of the writing of the Book of Revelation. Um, so that's six, and then the seventh it says he has not come, but when he does come, he must remain for a little while. So there's a seventh that's in the future, a sixth that was present, and five that fallen. Well, when it goes on and says the beast once was and now is not and is an eighth, it's saying that this one had to be one from, from the earlier five. He had to be one of the five that had already fallen. Mm-hmm. So he is, he, he, has, he has two appearances. There's seven kings, but one of them appears twice. And what I found is that uh, just as Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, I truly believe that the Antichrist is the one that began it all. He's the mm-hmm. first of the state of the seven, yeah. and he will return again as the last. And like in so many different things, when we're studying Revelation, we find a tie-in with the book of Genesis. You cannot understand the book of Revelation without fully understanding the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And hence why the people were astonished when they saw him, because Absolutely. there's some type of recognition of him, and they wouldn't have guessed yeah. that somebody like him would have suddenly reappeared. And, and nowadays, there is no, you know, in, in the secular academic world, there is no recognition of some... Uh, you know, savior figure from the ancient past. But when you look in the occult world, when you look in the New Age movement, when you look at uh, certain secret societies like Freemasonry, there is a huge mountain of evidence that 
that they honor and respect a savior figure from pagan religion um, who they who they have deified, and when we find this figure appearing in Egyptian religion, in in, in Sumerian mythology, in Babylonian mythology, in Greek mythology, uh, it's it's really it's really a whole secret history of you know of of a, a pagan destiny that they mm-hmm. look forward to. Right. What, what what you do is you put together something that's consistent with the biblical narrative, but it's also consistent with what the pagans say. Although yes. they, they 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 switch hats on who the good and bad yes. guys are, as you would expect, but it's not inconsistent with what they have. So what what they what they will recognize that's occurring in the last days, the 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 occultist would be consistent with what you're expecting will happen based upon the biblical record. It's yeah. just interpreting how to interpret the significance of the events. Yeah. But the events they have are their similar. own. They have their own their own twist on it. Right. And you see this twist goes all the way back to ancient Sumer, mm-hmm. when this original pagan civilization, ruled over by fallen angels, who have who who exist in a society where where religion and and politics are united, and where the high priest is acts as the voice of the gods, and and he is given authority. He is you know, uh, writing is, 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 uh, is a sacred, is a sacred art. And, and writing is carefully cultivated and taught only to a select few. And they only write what they are permitted, what mm-hmm. the, what the spirit world, uh, permits. I mean, these, these, the high priests of the ancient world were in shamanic uh, contact with fallen angels. That's the bottom line. And, and, uh, I document that in my UN presentation, which was quite shocking to a lot of the listeners there who were into yeah. spirit communication. Yeah. Uh, on the premises there, funded by the United Nations and the World Council of Churches, yeah. uh, doing this kind of connection, uh, even having people in the audience, little old ladies that are making cakes for the Queen of Heaven of Babylon, <laughs> that are worshiping yeah. Canaanite gods mm-hmm. right in our neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right, yeah. right in the heartland of America. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, they, the whole, the whole, you know, the whole occult mistake, the whole New Age mistake, is assuming that all religions are a valid path, you know, streams of the same river that converge in the same place. But the thing is, there's this whole, there's this whole setup in all pagan religions and all false religions. Everything does point to the appearance of a savior figure at the end of the world, mm-hmm. okay? But they just don't, they don't get it. The, the book of Revelation is very clear. The Antichrist comes first. And you go into excruciating detail in your writing The Geese of Discovery, to go into that, that basically there's an event that happens back in Mesopotamia, sets all this up, basically yes. sets the stage for all the legends and the sagas that were written around the world after that, mm-hmm. uh, and, and all of the occult teachings can be traced back to that. Uh, just like guys like you know Hislop that wrote the two Babylons, even though some people question this or that piece of data of all the data he has, that's the basic premise of his book, and there's a large argument to be made for that. Basically, and you could even trace it back to the garden when you look at Satan tempting Adam and Eve, hmm, and he yeah. says, uh, "You shall be illuminated; your eyes will be opened. If you take right. this fruit, you will be like gods." Uh, and, and those are the same messages that came out and made manifest and really became more of a concrete alternative religion from Babylon forward. And the, and the, the guy yeah. who set all that in motion is the one you're referring to, correct? He, he's the granddaddy. That well, got all he's, that the, he's the granddaddy. He's the, he's the first king of the post-flood world. And he, was, he presided over the mankind's first rebellion after the flood, which was the building of the Tower of Babel. 
and uh, there's evidence of that event in in the ancient uh, texts that come from Sumer, and I've 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 nailed him as a, a historical figure, mm-hmm. and it ties in it ties in perfectly with with the biblical record. Would you like to discuss him now? We're going to talk a little bit about some of the current day figures that people wonder about. Uh, would you like to say that for later, or would you like to discuss him a little? Well, I, again, we're just we're speaking back to this. Uh, uh, modern day perception that's, that's put out there that we need to be on the lookout for some, uh, you know, a potential antichrist on the rise. We're always looking mm-hmm. for the new, young, charismatic figure that everyone is flocking to, you know, as either, you know, head of the European Union, head of the United Nations, president of the United States, you know, certain figures like this. We're always looking here, looking there, saying, oh, could he be the one? Could he be the one? I just, the way I understand it, you know, it's going to be much more profound than that. I mean, this figure is going to have, uh, by who he is, he has the credibility to make people believe that he is the culmination of all the all the expectations of all the religions of the world. And, and people should be slapping their heads then and saying, could have had a V8 type experience when they see him. <laughs> uh, speaking of the uh, people, the speculation now, I know I have seen a lot of on the internet uh, amongst Christians about speculating that our new president-elect, yeah. uh, because he is virtually being worshipped by a large part right. of the masses as a messiah. Some incredible things are being said about him, uh, and they wonder if he has some connection to the other Antichrist. There are other people in the world that people find intriguing, uh, like the international charisma of leaders like uh, the French President Sarkozy, sure. who seems to be in the middle of everything that's going on internationally. Yeah. Uh, could Barack Obama or some other current world leader, in fact, be the Antichrist based upon yeah, some of this I, evidence? I mean, I've, I, I've, I've read a few articles. You know, I'm, I'm into the, the prophecy world. I have, I'm on email newsletter and stuff. And I've read a few that, that, that highlight him. And they come to the conclusion that, well, there's nothing that would prevent him from being the Antichrist. So we have to be aware and we have to be prepared. Well, we always need to be aware. We always need to be prepared. But... Uh, there are certain things that I do that totally exclude him mm-hmm. or any other presently existing human being on this planet as as being able to fulfill the prophecies of the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't. Uh, it's not a I question for myself. you, in other words. Yeah. <laughs> so not yeah. even Henry Kissinger. Not even Henry Kissinger, although he's yeah. I've been wanting to have inner circle, but <laughs> I've been wanting to have him on the show and just ask him directly because I don't know if anybody's yeah. had the courtesy to him ask or, him. Or maybe maybe uh, as big new Brzezinski, or even just look in their scalps. You know, you just take just... a peek. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is the purpose of the Antichrist, Peter? Uh, why does God allow him to do his thing? You know, people always ask about God in general. Why does he let bad things happen? Well, right. the ultimate bad thing happened is the reign of the Antichrist. That's right. What is his purpose, and why does God allow that to occur? <laughs> Well, uh, I really think in a, in a twisted way he he highlights who the true Messiah is because he is everything that the true Messiah is not. Mm. Um, let's just look at, at some of the parallels that, that exist between the two. Uh, you know, uh, Jesus was, was God incarnate, God in the flesh. Jesus was, um, you know, he was, it, it, the text says he's the one who, who, who was, who is, and who will always be. You know, he is the eternally existent one. He's, he is God. Now, the Antichrist, on the other hand, is the one who once was, now is not, and yet shall be. His his end is not eternal, you know, he doesn't have an eternal destiny. His end is destruction. If it's eternal, it's in it's in hell. It's in the lake of fire. Um, uh, another parallel, uh, I think I referred to it as, uh, you know, he, Jesus is the first and the last. And the Antichrist, I believe, is the first and the last of, of these seven kings. 
is the, he appeared first, and he will appear again as uh, in a second appearance as the eighth. But there's only seven again. <laughs> um, uh, but other other parallels are uh, in the descriptions of Jesus in in Revelation chapter five. It refers to Jesus as the Lamb who had been slain. Okay, mm-hmm. the very same phrase is used in describing this this head in Re- in Revelation chapter thirteen. This this king. It says that he appeared as one who had been slain unto death. Mm-hmm. So and then uh, going on, um, you know, Jesus is Jesus is the King of Heaven. He's been given all power and authority over the universe. Right now. The Antichrist is the king of the abyss. He presides over hell. His soul is in hell, and he and he rules over hell. Um, and then also the, the point of origin. They, again, they, now they both make a second coming. Jesus comes from heaven. The Antichrist is going to come from hell. I believe that the second coming of the Antichrist appears uh, uh, takes place at the fifth trumpet when the abyss is opened. Okay. And the and they the do. all the occultists not only will rush to him because he will fulfill. All, you know everything that they have in their writings to look for, mm-hmm. but they will have ancient writings to take to other people to point to and say, "You see, he's the guy." Yes. So they'll yeah. have very persuasive information to show others. That's right. But then, if you look at the very end of Revelation, uh, after everything is passed, after the, the, the seven bowls of wrath have been poured out, John says he looks up and he sees heaven opened. So, and then he sees Jesus the Messiah appearing, riding on a white horse. So hell is open for the Antichrist. Heaven is open for the true Christ. Uh, there are so much. It's like there are mirror opposites of each other. But the thing is, New Age, you know, New Age thinking, occult thinking, they don't. They see the mirror, but they're thinking they're thinking similarity. They're not thinking opposite. So they're thinking that they could just lump Jesus in with all of these other messiahs, and they even go so far as to say that you know the whole, the whole Jesus story is a myth based on these earlier, uh, you know representations and expectations that's where they go wrong well it's it's very interesting that uh, you mentioned these because um, you know we referred to this gentleman being a historical figure uh, from the past if that's the case where do we find him let's get to the chase Peter yeah let's get down to brass tacks yes yes well I uh, if it's easy to find him if you just <laughs> if people just uh, just open their minds and just think um, uh, they, but they've also they need to have they do need to have an understanding of, of certain things. For instance, what took place at the Tower of Babel, and uh, my understanding of this I, I owe a, a great debt to to Michael S. Heiser because he is the one that really opened my eyes to this. Um, mm-hmm. The Tower of Babel was hugely significant. It was a it was a major. And let, before you event. get started in this, yeah. when you and I first met at the at that famous conference, the Ancient of Days conference at Roswell, yeah. 2005, I came up to you and mentioned to you my suspicions and my research That's about right. the same character before you That's really right. opened your mouth. And that was That's something right. that clicked out. So, so I, you know, I can't blame that you for putting That was a divine encounter, this. Mike. Well, I believe so. <laughs> divine appointment. I'm I believe so. And, and, and I, I can't say you just put this idea in my mind. Through my own independent research, I suspected yep. that. However, you gave me the information to me to, to strongly submit the possibility. Right. So right. proceed. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, going back to the Tower of Babel, we know that this is, this is a point in time where the, the nations of, uh, of the world were divided according to languages. What we don't fully understand, because it's not explicitly told, although it is understood, if you can do- dovetail this with a number of other scriptures, and I'm not going to go into those, but uh, I do that in my, in my study. Um, but let me just say what happened. Uh, because of mankind's rebellion, which was led by Nimrod, okay, I've named him. That's the guy. 
because of because of what Nimrod did in in uniting the world by force, by manipulation, you know, by coercion, by whatever whatever means he used, he united the world and and they had uh, congregated on the plains of Shinar to build this tower. Um, because of this, God looked upon that and and uh, made a judgment. And Mike Heiser refers to this as the so I think he refers to it as the Romans, what does he call it, the Romans 1 event, when it says when God mm-hmm. gave them over. To a right? man. Yeah. Yes, yes. So what happened at this point is God gave the nations of the world over to the authority of the fallen angels. Mm-hmm. And we know this because of the, the list of nations in Genesis chapter 10, which merely precedes the Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. The table of nations, the, yeah. Yes, there's there's 70 nations there. And we know from other texts like Deuteronomy 32.8, that uh, the nations were divided according to the number of the sons of God, and and so there's this there's this tradition that we find in the Bible and also extra hey, biblical. Let me let me ask you, Peter, have you ever yeah. heard any traditional Bible teachers outside of the Mike Heiser kind of crowd any traditional that even bothered to try to interpret that scripture you just quoted? Uh, I haven't run across any. No. I mean, I haven't either. I mean, it's just like they yeah. gloss over it. To me, that's a pretty significant passage. And I have found this more and more often, having gotten to know people like you, Mike Heiser, similar characters yeah. in our in our pantheon of researchers, uh, David Lowe, who actually are just pointing to scriptures that have been glossed over in our Bible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with no real serious attempt to make a credible interpretation of it. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just well, want I people just, to make a note of that. How, that just highlights how cutting edge you are, because you're right on the forefront of, of what Christians need to understand about the Bible. Well, I'm I'm a groupie. I just try to chase the people who know what's know what's going on, you know, and and I like yeah. to I like to get the word out to people for people to consider. Our clientele that listens to Future Quake are not your average breed of Christian. Right. They are they are free thinkers. They're, they're, they're committed to the Bible. Bible. They're committed to the Bible. Yeah. They're committed to God's word. There's not there's no debate here on whether God's word is the complete testimony of Christ. That's not even questioned here. If anything, these studies we do reinforce our commitment to God's word as the revelation of reality in the world he created in his plan. Uh, but what I find as a researcher, the, the very compelling things that you and, and these other guys do is is actually answer questions that the church to date really hasn't had a good answer for the rest of the right. world for. Right, right. Well, we just, uh, you know, Mike Heiser's working on a book called The Myth That Is True, and he's, his whole goal is to is to bring an understanding of the supernatural world back to the church and and you've got to read, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. It's it's a it's a great cosmic epic narrative, and it's it's supernatural in basis. And you've got to keep that in mind. It's it's all supernatural. It's all about you know God against the gods. We're back at the Future Quake Show with Doctor Future and Tom Bionic, and um, we got some real meat and potatoes. Indeed, uh, this discussion mm-hmm. uh, elaborated mm-hmm. further about. Uh, this whole concept of the second coming of the Antichrist, which mm-hmm. I think that's a neat way to phrase it because that's what sort of stands apart his theory from a lot of other prophecy yeah. teachers. Yeah, and this this was something I think I asked him uh, in this segment of the interview. Why did they Why did they need to mummify Osiris? Mm-hmm. You know, because they had a further use for his body. Well, at least the spirits who directed him told yeah. him they did. Yep. That's, you know, part theory. Mm-hmm. And um, ladies and gentlemen, if if this all sounds crazy to you, I'd recommend you read his book or go read yeah. Easy Discovery Online but, and just withhold judgment until you see it. Yeah. Maybe you, still may not, you still may not agree with it, but I think you'll be fascinated by his research. Yeah, check out Show 60. Evidently, that's the legendary one. Yeah. So, um, 
I would recommend all hundred plus hundred and forty something, but sure, you know, in one setting. Even that, even that one where uh, Emmett was snoring on the microphone. Well, yeah. Just don't listen to the one about the uh, me doing the State of the Union address where I had to hold the microphone down to my laptop. That was going to be the next one. Yeah. I That's the only one any of my friends listened to was that show. Yeah, so great. Well, we didn't talk about Peter Goodgame, but he does a better job talking about yeah. it himself. Yeah. So we need to bring him. Uh, Emmett. Uh, we need to bring in Merv. So Merv, come in and tell them how they can find out more about Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we need to run. Any right. words? None. None. Okay. Well, come back for the next segment with Peter Goodgame tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Mahalo. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am definitely Tom Bionic. And we are definitely with Peter Goodgame this week. Indeed, sir. One, one of our most beloved guests by our listeners and by us, too. Yeah. And um, he just hadn't been here for a while, and yeah. I'm glad you got a chance to meet him personally. Yeah, I did, I did too. Um, you He's know, the real deal. I will be a little bit honest here, maybe a little bit overly candid, but I feel like there was like, it was almost too much information at, you know, at about minute 30 I felt like, you know, I, I don't was know. wearing a tinfoil hat and everything was bouncing off. What do you do otherwise? <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to sort of... i got to get them to talk slower or something mm-hmm. for, for us people who are slow on the uptake. Like you just have a show, Who's Asher, and just leave it at that. How about that? Uh, at least it'll be something I'll be able to And follow. then we might get down in 20 minutes and yeah. want to tell jokes. There you go. I know what you're saying. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not a very good host in knowing how to... No, no, stuff. no. You're Well, and I and I think this. I think with this interview Seriously. was... Uh, it was, you know, just bringing everything that he'd done together. What I hope to do is that people will hear this and be intrigued enough to, check to go, check it out, read it at your own pace, yeah. mull it over. If you find anything intriguing, if you don't believe it, if you think it's preposterous, mm-hmm. sometimes things that even that are preposterous are intriguing enough by their very preposterousness that you want to go see what it is. Yeah. And I will tell you that he just doesn't make flippant comments. He goes back and finds references in the Bible. So he has an excellent knowledge of the Bible mm-hmm. and uh, tries to make an effort to be holistic in looking over the entire Word of God yeah. in his time. So uh, I think you – I don't know anybody who's not read his work in great detail that was not really won over or influenced by it. Yeah. That just bothered to take the time to do uh, it. So I think ourselves included. Well, and I certainly count myself for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he talked about uh, – Basically, we finally unveiled the curtain to Nimrod uh, mm-hmm. last time, being who we, or he thinks, could be the prior king that was one of the seven that will be the eighth king yep. in the last days. And we we couldn't go very much into it, but the parallels of Nimrod and who the Antichrist is in the New Testament are uncanny. Yeah. And I, uh, 
I don't know what you thought about my uh, uh, comment about um, uh, the day of Pentecost. But, uh, you know, we'll talk about that further. Uh, Until then, here is Peter Goodgame, and we'll be right back to summarize on Future Quake. Now, in Genesis chapter 11, when this division took place, God is standing among a group of of beings who he's going to give authority of the nations over to them. And he says, come, let us go down. And that is what happened. The, the fallen angels were given authority over the nations of the world. And this is the very beginning of paganism. When every nation began to worship, uh, you know, in the same kind of uh, pantheistic uh, structure mm-hmm. of having a, you know, uh, a pantheon of gods. Um, and also, they all seemed, especially in the ancient Near East, they all seem to have uh, an understanding of a figure at the very beginning who was uh, a dying Messiah, a dying God, a savior figure. Mm-hmm. Now, some of these uh, uh, some of these traditions have that God rising in the past, so he died and then he rose mm-hmm. again. Others, such as in ancient Egypt, this God died but hasn't yet risen again. Yet they have myths and traditions that he will rise again at the end of the age. And I'm, I'm speaking specifically of the Egyptian god Osiris. Mm-hmm. He is the key figure in Egyptian mythology. Now, that is the most popular, now, that's the most popular mythology today in the modern world that has survived. Egypt, Egypt uh, is, is the yeah. whole idea of Osiris, Isis, and then the resurrection of Horus is one that's yes. still part of our, our psyche today. Yes, yes. Well, now let's take a look back and tie this in with the Osiris story. If we're looking at the Tower of Babel, we see that God is in his council with these 70 angelic beings who are, they're just, they're ready. They love it. You know, give us, give us each a nation. We'll show you that we can rule over mankind better than you can. You know, they have this kind of attitude. Now, yet at the same time, you have Satan who is, uh, Nimrod is kind of like Satan's, uh, servant on the earth. Um, you have a one world empire that had been, Created through Nimrod and through his conquest against the very first commandment, you know, given after the flood, which was don't don't be killing each other. Mm-hmm. That was the command from God, and Nimrod was the first to just violently disregard that, and he built his empire by conquest and bloodshed. Now, if we go to the, the story of Osiris, Osiris is referred to as the very first pharaoh in Egyptian history. Okay, mm-hmm. he also conquered the known world. He was he was a great conqueror, but there came a time when there was a secret, uh, there was, a, there was a, a conspiracy against him. And it's very interesting that this conspiracy, it included the Egyptian god Seth, which he's an enigmatic figure. Try, it's hard to figure out exactly how, what role he plays or how he fits into anything. But Seth, among 70 other conspirators, mm-hmm. they all decided, they all conspired against Nimrod, and they all, or against Osiris, and they had him killed. That's, that's one of the foundational... That is the foundational story of the whole, you know, uh, dynastic Egypt. That's, mm-hmm. that's the basis of their whole tradition. Now, the very interesting thing is that, according to Egyptian uh, tradition, this, this King Osiris was the very first figure to ever be mummified. That is where the tradition of mummification began. Right. Well, why, would they, why would they mummify him? Why would they mummify him? That's, yeah. That is precisely the question. Um, they wanted to they wanted to keep his body uh, safe because perhaps they knew that he would need it were, again. Yeah, because they were going to need it again. Well, because there was teaching even back, I think, at the time of Nimrod, maybe just before or after, about the concept of the dying and rising God being sacrificed yes. and resurrected. So that was yes. in the consciousness of the peoples of the world. 
Yeah, well, yeah. Osiris and Nimrod, I think, are the, are the very same character, and and uh, there there definitely was this belief that he would come back. And and also going back to this time frame, we have the very first historical representation of a seven-headed dragon. We find this uh, artifact that was dug up from ancient Sumer, and it's it's uh, you know it just smacks of of the Book of Revelation. It shows a certain savior figure battling a seven-headed dragon. And if you do comparative studies and comparative mythology from ancient Sumer to Ugaritic texts to the Old Testament, you find that this is a picture of what the Old Testament refers to as Leviathan, mm-hmm. which is the very same, um, you know, uh, the book of Isaiah says that in the day of the Lord, Leviathan will finally be crushed. Leviathan will finally be killed by by the Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Leviathan is this, you know, this, this, this uh, seven-time manifestation of of Satan's sons in authority over the earth. Well, I highly recommend all of our listeners, if you're intrigued at all, you may not be buying all this yet, but go read the Giza Discovery at the top of, of uh, redmoonrising.com and just mull it over and decide for yourself. Now, he's written many other uh, sideline pieces since then and advanced it further, but I keep finding new data all the time that reinforces your hypothesis, Peter. Uh, just yesterday... I was reading uh, a reference that had a citation from an ancient Jewish text that believed that Nimrod, uh, when he was killed, his body was cut up into a whole bunch of little pieces, mm-hmm. and his wife, Semiramis, went and collected them and put them back together. Right, right. Now, that's an exact replica of the whole mythology of Osiris, who was yes. cut up into all these pieces, and, yeah. and uh, Isis went and collected them yeah. and put them all well, together. Yeah, I, I believe the, the cutting up referred to the division of his empire. Okay? So. That's, I think that's, about, that's what it symbolized. As far as the body of Osiris itself, um, it, it was put back together, according to the mythology, mm-hmm. by his wife, Isis. And then she was able to be supernaturally impregnated, and then she gave birth to Horus, who then took over as, uh, you know, as as continuing the line of pharaohs right. in the old kingdom dynasties. But now there's a whole other historical tie-in with this, uh, with the Osiris story, and it goes back to what the ancient historians said, uh, particularly Manetho, who was an Egyptian scribe who lived at the time after, just after the Greek conquest, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. Um, he referred to the first historical king of Egypt, and, and the name of that king was King Menes, Okay. And what it says about Menes, and I, now I refer to this, I think it's part part 8, I believe, part 8 of my Giza discovery. But there are so many uh, similarities between what uh, uh, Manetho and Herodotus and certain other historians said about the historical figure Menes compared with what they also say about the myth, supposedly mythological figure of Osiris. So I believe that they are the very same person. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now, now looking at a... It might sound strange to have a, a, an app looking at an Egyptian origin for Nimrod, but uh, perhaps perhaps we don't have time to go into it. But uh, there is there's a great deal of information, and I and I refer to it that's showing a, a very uh, interesting connection between Egypt, Ethiopia, and ancient Sumer, mm-hmm. and it has to do with his father Cush and the migrations that they took. Right, and then it's also interesting that, uh, and you can get that just from archaeological findings that have been that's found. Right. That's right. That actually show a migration of people from Mesopotamia to Bahrain and then to Upper Egypt. Yeah, Kush settled in the land of Kush. It's basically modern day Ethiopia. And then I, I also uh, show a couple of uh, references that say that Osiris originally came from an Ethiopian colony and and traveled north.
and conquered all of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So the, just the tie-ins, just they, they, they never end. I'm just well, anytime I want to plunge into the research, I'm, I'm finding new evidence. Consistencies. Now, our listeners, I, again, until you go and read the Giza discovery and mull it yourself, just stop and think. Just on on the information we have in the Bible uh, about Nimrod, if if we assume or, or consider the possibility that the Antichrist could be a historical figure that once lived, who in the Bible best fits the picture we know for the Antichrist? If you look at Nimrod, Nimrod was a mighty hunter. He conquered the known world. He he had all the world underneath his control. He went out and made the announcement he wanted to go conquer heaven. He wanted to go fight heaven and, and go have a battle. Uh, and then uh, God said, if we don't stop it now, there's nothing that they can't do. At which he, you know, and God then intervenes and stops it. But there's some interesting comparisons. You know, uh, when you mentioned about uh, comparing the, the the mission of Christ to to Nimrod, I've I've listed in the past a number of parallels, but one just hit me yesterday. Uh, if you think about the time of the Tower, um, you you see that that uh, Nimrod's kingdom, his personal kingdom, ended at the time at the Tower when the world's communication became confused. And chaotic. Right. In other words, all these new tongues were introduced that split everybody apart. Whereas you see Christ's kingdom on earth uh, began in force when everybody spoke in tongues and understood each other. That's right. At That's the day right. of Pentecost. Yeah. So yeah, in both of, tongues is like the the heavens response to to the linguistic division of the nations. So so God intervened in both it says but in both cases God came down. One of them it was to confuse all the tongues to stop destruction. The other one was to unify the tongues to actually bring about constructive activity. Right. So sort of an anti-babble, and I had never really thought about that before. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's a very important point. That there, that there's a, cl- a clear contrast. Um, how come the uh, the Old Testament versions that we commonly use today seem to say so little about the Antichrist? Yes, I, you know, I hear this a lot that uh, Nimrod is just such a minor figure in the Old Testament, and and it, it's said that people make way too much of him. That that they add so much when there's really nothing said about him, but uh, the the key that I found is that I, Nimrod has another name. It's very simple. Nimrod has another name, um, uh, and this is let me let me refer back to uh, a guy that I really like, an old saint by the name of Victorinus. He lived in about uh, the third century A.D. Okay, he is he is the one who wrote the very first commentary on the book of revelation the earliest commentary on the book of revelation that is in existence mm-hmm. so it was written a couple of hundred years after the book of revelation was written but he looks back at at these old testament prophecies that speak of this figure known as asher and he says asher is the antichrist that's what he says in his commentary hmm. now it's now a s s h u r yes um now uh, it's interesting. Um, so I this this actually validated what I had, what I had arrived at already because I had made the connection earlier based on, for instance, um, just my understanding of ancient mythology and and the evolution of the whole Nimrod story in in mythology. Because Nimrod, you know, he existed as a historical person first. His name was Enmarkar in the Sumerian history. Um, then he became deified as a god known as Ninurta, and then he then he kind of uh, took shape as the god Marduk, and then there was kind of a, a takeover in the pantheon. There was an upheaval, and then Marduk became like a Zeus figure at the top of the pantheon, 
um, it's almost like there's this kind of generational layering because he mm-hmm. displaced earlier gods. And what we see through pagan religion is this evolutional, the generational layering that just generation after generation, what it's doing, it's, it's removing mankind's understanding of an original creator god from our consciousness. That's what it's doing. It's distancing mm-hmm. ourselves from that. Well, let me so, ask you this. If, if he displaced these earlier gods... Could yes. these earlier gods also be now? You know, we're we're trying to speculate on what they have, so we have to walk very carefully here. But could could, could these earlier earlier gods be the kind of gods that came down at the tower, the Benai Elohim? Absolutely, and they're coming back for revenge, so to speak. Well, uh, not necessarily. I, I right. think this evolutionary layering is purely hypothetical. It's something that occurred only in the minds of the priests, but it was something that was manipulated by the by the real spiritual forces at work there. Mm-hmm. In other words, because I, I believe that the, the ancient Sumer did have an understanding of an original creator God. It's just that they didn't look at him as necessarily good. Mm-hmm. They looked, they saw, they saw two primary gods. Um, one was Enki, and the other was Enlil. Enlil seems to be the creator God. Yet the mm-hmm. Sumerians spoke most highly about Enki. Right. They referred to Enki as the champion of mankind. Enki was our brother. Enki was the one who taught us all these great things like uh, witchcraft and warfare and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, astrology and divination and that kind of thing. He was the wise one. Right. He, was, he was that great serpent, Enki, is now this, who he this, was. This is the great spin uh, that you're giving us, uh, yeah, yeah. the spin in, in world history. Yeah, uh, but, now, now, to me, though, let, let me, uh, I'm just going to think out loud here. Um, yes. If, if there's any consistency in this writing, if it's not fanciful and it does tie to the biblical record, and, and let's just say these early gods were the sons of God that he yes. had replaced. I'm led to believe the thought that Nimrod was really Satan's man, a Satan's sure. man that he wanted yeah, here sure. in human clothing to run the earth. Right. When God comes, God's the one who initiates coming down. He's the one that assigns these other nations to the right. uh, Benai Elohim. It's almost like these figures are, are people who were still in access to God. They're given this duty, and then, then the chapter in Psalm gives an indication that they failed in their duty. Right. It says Psalm 82. That, Very right, important. It says that, uh, you know, uh, you are gods, but you're going to die like men. And it right. shows all the terrible things that were done. Like they failed the test, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, will, and will come under judgment because of that. So, so that seems to me to be somewhat consistent that um, – the, the, these other entities are a whole, whole yet other group of, of the spiritual kingdom, these Benai Elohim, with their own problems, whereas Nimrod is directly Satan's hand-picked right. guy that he will bring back. Uh, mm-hmm. He'll bring the real deal back, even though these uh, sons of God, uh, at the time when they were in good standing uh, with our Heavenly Father, right. uh, actually were his undoing. Well, yeah, but there's a lot of gray area here, and this is what I think. I, I think that these... The sons of God that were allowed to descend and take over authority, I think they were rebellious from the beginning, and they had rebellion in their heart, and they were already on Satan's side. That's what I believe. Mm-hmm. It's just that Satan's situation uh, changed from being the the king over a uh, you know over a united world empire. He then had to deal with how to be a king over a divided world empire, mm-hmm. because everything all of a sudden it became it, it became much more complicated for him. But his underlings. They welcome the chance to be given this authority, but then what happened with with Marduk and this this takeover that happened in the pantheons almost uh, consistently throughout the Near East in, in a couple of different traditions. What I think is um, that uh, Satan wanted to eliminate 
the the memory of this Enlil Enki kind of conflict, because there was always this uh, there was always this deeply uh, thinly veiled animosity between Enlil and Enki, although both were honored. Mm-hmm. But Satan didn't want to give Enlil any kind of honor. Mm-hmm. So what I think it, he did is he simply um, used the mythology of of Nimrod, and this I, I think this stuff happened. This battle, I think, happened around 3100 BC. Okay, I'm just mm-hmm. going to put that out there. Uh, people I know are going to uh, uh, challenge that, but I have my reasons for sticking to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this takeover of the Pantheon, when Marduk reigned supreme, happened between uh, like 1500 to 1700 BC, a long time after. But what 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 Satan wanted to do is kind of wipe the slate clean, and he basically uh, he took over the Pantheon just simply using the the history and the mythology of Nimrod. So it was Satan himself behind behind Marduk, okay? Well, he's certainly now, the prince of the kingdoms of this world. Yes, yes. Now, in Greek mythology, Marduk is, is simply Zeus. And in the book of Revelation, it refers to the city of Pergamum as the city where, where Satan's throne is. Mm-hmm. And, and that was an ancient uh, archaeological structure. That was the uh, most elaborate, massive, uh, hugely ornamental altar to the god Zeus that existed in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. That was Satan's throne. Right. Zeus, as, as far as you know, as far as the early church was concerned, Zeus was Satan. There's really no doubt about that. Right. Well, we should read very carefully those those uh, comments and those letters in Revelation and not gloss over That's them, right. because I learned yeah. recently that that same town Pergamum was known historically for its one of the kind in the world eye salve that it produced, and it also uh-huh. was known for a black wool that it produced. And, and and also, it was so wealthy, it was such a wealthy commerce center, that when a great earthquake leveled the city and Rome offered to rebuild it, they said, that's okay, we're wealthy, we don't need your money. <laughs> so when you reflect yeah. on the comments Jesus says in Pergamum, it says, where you say you are wealthy and have need of nothing. Uh, but, yeah. you know, here they are clothed in black wool, but he says you need white robes to wear, and you need ISAV to see, even though they were sitting on all the ISAV in the world. Uh, it's worthwhile to take just those little comments that Jesus makes very, very seriously. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. Um, now, how, we, we, we kind of got off course here. We were talking about Asher yes. in the Old uh-huh. Testament and how I know that Asher is another name for, for the Antichrist. Um, getting back to uh, for what, what Paul said in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he said that the breath of the Lord will destroy the Antichrist at his coming. Okay, What Paul is simply referring to is, is three references in the book of Isaiah that there's a couple explicit and one implicit that say that Asher will be destroyed by the breath of the Lord at his coming. So there's one tie-in, and there's yeah. there's a list of about five or six. They're not at the top of my mind right now, but they're in my Giza discovery. Mm-hmm. But uh, the but the original tie-in that connects Asher and, and Nimrod is in Genesis chapter 10 in the description mm-hmm. of Nimrod, when it refers to Nimrod as Asher. And Nim, Nimrod Asher is not to be confused with the second son of Shem, who is also referred to as Asher. Right. There are two mm-hmm. separate figures known as Asher. Now it, uh, it, it sounds problematic, but that's the case. And there's there's this this mm-hmm. occurs several times in the Table of Nations, where a name appears twice. Right. And even more in the Septuagint, which seems to be more more valid actually. The Septuagint uh, retains the, the the wordage of Asher in the passages that we think clearly show the Antichrist, whereas well, some of that gets masked later, right? It's, it's interesting, yeah. It seems that the Septuagint does uh, contain more references to Asher than the Masoretic text. It does seem that in the Masoretic text, 
there are several important references to Asher in the Old Testament that have just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And you can only find them in the, in the Septuagint. One of them is, is referencing, the, there's this whole passage now from like Isaiah chapter 8 to Isaiah, through Isaiah chapter 14. That whole thing is talking about Asher. And there's a near and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment, of course, was talking about Asher as the Assyrian nation who was coming against the, you know, the northern nation of Israel at that time. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, when Jesus quoted from his Day of the Lord passages in Matthew 24, he quoted from Isaiah chapter 13 and, and, and put it in the future. There's an end-time fulfillment. All these prophecies about Asher are going to have an end-time fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Now, in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 10, it refers to Asher as, as being the club of God's wrath or of holding the club of God's wrath. And so that was that had a near fulfillment as Assyria conquered Israel in, in, in judgment, but also in a far fulfillment because Asher will come again. Mm-hmm. We're back at the Future Quake Show with Dr. Future. And Tom Effervescent Bionic. I didn't know what you were going to say. Effervescent, right. that's, that's a unique one. Yeah. You know, I, all yeah. I can think of as effervescent is polygrip. It's not effervescent. It was advertised that way. It's, Maybe it's, I'm thinking of... Uh, Alka-Seltzer. Uh, Alka-Seltzer was effervescent. For some reason, I thought Polygrip was. But no. I had to go back and watch my Lawrence Welk library. Yeah, there you go. I can spend a good weekend doing that. Well, I don't, Talk know, about what to, I don't know what to say about that. I'm not that, exactly. that square. Even I'm not that square. Um, well, we uh, talked a good bit today about not only Nimrod uh, in the hypothesis mm-hmm. being Antichrist, but also his connection to this mythological creature, Osiris. Yes. That may have been a real person. Yep. And more data they uncovered, the archaeologists in recent years, I've started collecting this data since I've known his theories, uh, seems to suggest that Osiris was real. The occultists sure believe he was. And that was, and that's really a big thrust of uh, his Giza discovery documents and stuff. He goes into both. Uh, it's interesting to me to hear him say that he can prove that Nimrod is the Antichrist just through the Bible, but then when you throw in all this other research, it becomes really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I I think he makes a very intriguing case. Yeah. And if you have an open mind and want to read it, all I can tell you, he loves God's Word. Uh, he sees it as the real authority, but he's a real scholar. Mm-hmm. And other people who love God's Word uh, really highly regard Peter. So I suggest you check it out. Of course, I'm speaking to a lot of his... Big fans already out there. So yeah. uh, keep giving encouragement to Peter. We need to get him to uh, apply his intellect to some more things. So, But we need to get Merv to apply himself to us. So Merv, come in here and tell our listeners how they can contact us. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. We're getting to be the end of, end of our days. Let's split. Okay. It's the the day of future quake is over, mm-hmm. so we'd like to see you tomorrow. And until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Mahalo. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 Nothing can change the shape.
Welcome to the Thursday edition of Future Quake. I am Dr. Future. Where did all that come from? Like I don't know. Fire, Just trying something fire different. Fire it up, man. No, I'm, it's cool. I'm Tom Bionic here. Uh, we've been talking all day with uh, uh, Peter Goodgame here, and uh, we're going to talk it, with him some more. Yeah. You were just ad-libbing there. I was. Yeah. Can I ad-lib? Is that not yeah, cool? Okay. I will so only We were talking read. all day. We were just here for a half hour in people's homes. Well, I feel like, well, his, his stuff is so knowledgeable and so fact-filled. I feel like it's an all-day occurrence. Well, hopefully people will listen to it at futurequake.com. I feel like. listening to it all day. I feel right. like my brain has actually gotten bigger in the time that we've interviewed him. Like, the physical dimensions and diameter has actually, to accommodate all the information. Really? That has come in. Yeah. Huh. It's so like brain swelling? A little bit. Huh. You know, you get myself a helmet. You're talking about my flagrant kind of entry there. Uh, I miss that when I was on WRFN, I'd always say, you know, as evening falls across the hills of Middle Tennessee, you're now entering Future Quake or something mysterious like that. Really? That yeah. might have been before my time. This doesn't fit as well as 4 p.m., yeah. you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah. what does fit is uh, Peter Goodgame. We need to bring him in here to talk. So uh, this is our last section. Uh, it continues to crescendo. Uh, you want to hear the complete body of his mm-hmm. interview. So, no yes. further ado, here is Peter Goodgame, and then we'll be right back to wrap it up on Future Quake. We're, we're coming up to uh, our last part of our uh, interview segment here. Um, how do you think, uh, when and how will the Antichrist be revealed? How, what, what's your thinking right now on that? Well, I think, there's, I think we have to separate the revealing of the Antichrist with the resurrection of the Antichrist. Okay, his coming will appear as a as a supernatural miracle. Okay, but his revealing is something that takes place before the day of the Lord. I think the uh, it's very clear in in Scripture that the abyss is opened after the day of the Lord begins. Mm-hmm. God, you know, God shakes the earth at the sixth seal, and everyone is everything is thrown into chaos. And you have this the Ezekiel thirty eight thirty nine Gog Magog invasion playing out. It's in that aftermath when the Antichrist appears. I think Gog Magog can be seen as as taking place concurrent with the sixth seal and the the first trumpet of Revelation, and then basically the first four trumpets are bring to conclusion like the opening salvo of the day of the Lord of the day of God's wrath. It's just the opening salvo. Then there's a lull, and then this Messiah figure steps up and says, "Armageddon's done. It's finished. I'm the Messiah. Here I am," and the whole world is astonished. Well, and, and so, in your writings, you go in excruciating detail through individual scriptures to try to put in a chronology that's yeah. as bulletproof as possible. Yeah, as, and as try to address and challenging scriptures yeah. or anything that could contradict. Yeah, it's it's not flawless, and there are uh, interpretations that I hold to that are very highly debatable. So yeah, so mm-hmm. you know, I'm not. It's not completely bulletproof by by any means. But, well, but what will happen is when people pursue study of your your uh, uh, hypotheses. They will study the Bible more in yeah. the process of doing yeah. it. Well, they will know more. Open. They will know more about their Bible when they pursue this avenue of study. Yeah, yeah. Um, but getting back to the revealing of the Antichrist, I talked about how the the second coming and the resurrection of the Antichrist takes place after the Day of the Lord has already begun. The revealing of the Antichrist is one of the one of the three things that Scripture says takes place before the Day of the Lord. There are three things that take place before the Day of the Lord. One is the coming of the prophet Elijah. And I have no idea how that's going to work out. That's that's an enigma mm-hmm. to me still yet. 
But uh, another one is the blood red moon and the sun turning dark, according to Joel. And that happens at the beginning of the sixth seal. So that's like a marker saying the day of the Lord begins after this. Mm-hmm. That's why I cannot, uh, I have very little patience for people who continue to say that the day of the Lord begins with the first seal. Because this sign occurs in the sixth seal, and scripture is clear that this sign happens before the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, well, the, the third thing is the uh, go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if you do tie the rapture to the event around the Gog Magog battle and the earthquake and, and the sixth seal, yeah. um, certainly when it says, uh, you know, the saints shall return, the dead in Christ shall rise, that would be a natural time for Elijah to return, just moments before the official day of the Lord kicks yeah, off. Yeah, it would have to happen in in the momentary time span, and it, and it could be because I believe uh, that when this all begins. It's going to be, there's going to be a supernatural, I mean, it's it's a physical shaking and quaking, but it's a supernatural quaking, and the Bible says men's souls fail themselves for fear. You know, this is, it's 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 a soul-shattering moment, and yeah, perhaps Elijah could fit in somewhere where he, you know, I think he has a ministry to Israel particularly, not necessarily to the nations. It says fire will come so, down from heaven in those days, there might be a flaming chariot that's part of it too. Uh, that comes down, and yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as Moses goes, you know there was a dispute over his body uh, with with uh, Satan and Michael, and uh, you might just see his uh, body come up out of the ground, holding his staff up in the air during that Magog battle, it, it, just like happen. he did yeah. with the Amalekites. I know we're all speculating here, but it, it offers some very interesting uh, possibilities when you even mm-hmm. consider it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, getting back to that the third thing, the yeah. third thing, the third event that has to precede the Day of the Lord is. The, the revealing of the Antichrist. Now, I don't believe that uh, this means that the Antichrist appears in power. I think he's simply, and this is uh, even well-known sco- prophecy scholars like Arnold Fruchtenbaum agree with what I'm saying. It's simply the revealing of his identity to the church. Mm-hmm. To the church who is awake and understanding, the identity of the Antichrist will be revealed. And, and list, be one of listening, those signs. listening to future quake. Uh, sure, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Yes, um... So I think the revealing of the Antichrist in this case. So now I go back to what Jesus said. Um, let me let me let me get my Bible out. Jesus had some very interesting words that nobody has really understood about false false Christs and false prophets at the time of the end. Um, oh, this is a very Matthew, intriguing passage that you're going to bring Matthew up here. Matthew 24. Yes, yes. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to find it. Okay, it says. Um, at that time, if anyone says to you, "Here, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to, to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Now, the Greek, the better translation is secret chambers. Okay, I'll just throw that out there. Well, you know, that's here interesting. There are secret chambers in the Great Pyramid. Oh, Peter, yeah. Good game. We should go there. And uh, that. No, that's out in the desert. <laughs> that's right. It says, do not believe it. And then he contrasts his coming, saying, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus is revealed, every eye will see him. On the other hand, when the Antichrist is revealed, they're going to say, here he is. He's out in the desert in the secret mm. room. We found him. And then the last thing that Jesus says about false Christ, he says, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will gather. So I think mm. that speaks for itself. Mm. So you're and thinking it's we, a carcass that may reanimate. Well, I think I think when he is revealed, it will simply be as a carcass. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. Okay. As a corpse. Fascinating. Fascinating uh, understanding there. Um, how should a Christian respond to the growing popular interest in this 2012? That's the biggest thing we hear in the news now, you know, about the last of the days, you know. Yeah, yeah. Have you, have you seen there's a trailer on the on the Internet of uh, the new movie 2012 starring uh, uh, a couple of well-known Hollywood guys? I only watch movies by Chris Pinto anymore. Uh, yeah, you're smart. You're smart. <laughs> I, I I got rid of my cable TV a few months back too myself. Yeah, so. okay. it's amazing but, how much uh, time that opens up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is, but it's been a blessing. Let me tell yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So so twenty but, uh, yeah twenty twelve yeah. I mean you have you have a lot of people saying a lot of things. I mean there's all kinds of different theories. Uh, you know, twenty twelve is based on the end of of this a specific era according to the Mayan calendar. Okay. 2012 is when this era ends. Um, so there's people that predicting the end of the world, according to this movie. It's the whole premise of this movie is that yeah, there's a global cataclysm in 2012, and then it's it's how does mankind uh, uh, get its footing again after this after this great cataclysm? Um, so there's lots of theories out there. There's uh, there's the polar shift theory. There's the uh, uh, like a sunspot ejection, a, a massive solar flare ejection from the Earth that's going to burn mm-hmm. the Earth or something in 2012. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of well, planetary planet alignment X. theories. Yeah, Planet X. Yeah, there's Planet X theory. Um, there's all kinds of wild theories. Um, but uh, but something but, could happen that Satan could use just to support his devotees who are looking for the possible. day. He, if it's he possible. wanted to, he could take advantage of that. Yeah. Not well, God. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't dived into this. Uh, serious kind of research, but there are a couple of things that have, that have popped up for me. But uh, but you know, I, I think as as Christians, as Christians, this creates an opportunity for us. Whenever the world is looking around in fascination and you know a little bit of fear, because you know all this stuff is most of the population just uh, just laughs and scoffs and says, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And uh, you know, uh, we want to say the same thing, of course. But the thing is, the Bible does talk about a polar shift coming. The Bible does talk about the sun getting hotter. Mm-hmm. All these things are predicted to occur. It's just that the Bible doesn't give us a specific date. Right. So yeah. we need to be careful. You know, our tendency, we want to join the scoffers and mockers mm-hmm. and, and laugh and say it's all a bunch of hooey, but uh, we need to be careful, and we need to understand that, you know, the world does wonder. Right. The world is intrigued by this mystery, and the thing is we do have some answers. That's right. So as far as this specific date being December 21, 2012 is the end date of this mm-hmm. of this calendar. Um, the only thing that I could see as as even possibly fulfilling anything prophetically or having any time of, any kind of, of prophetic tie-in, um, this this whole idea came from looking not at the beginning date but at the ending date, or excuse me, not the ending date but the beginning date date. Now. This, this whole era began circa, uh, like, I think it was 3114 B.C. is when the Mayan mm-hmm. calendar began. And their whole mythology seems to be based on uh, the, the uh, constellation Orion. We didn't mm-hmm. even get into that. The, How the constellation mm-hmm. Orion is, that's, a, that's an earthly representation of, the, of, the Great Pyramids are an earthly representation of the constellation Orion. Right. And Osiris, um, he, is, he is viewed in the sky as, as Orion, the great hunter, that is mm-hmm. that is Osiris in the night sky. Right. Um, so we have that, and then it's interesting. We also go to Hindu mythology, 
and their understanding of their era known as Kali Yuga, which is supposed to last for like mm. three million years or something like that. So their ending date is way down the line. But they do believe that Krishna is coming back. And when, mm. when the earth gets wicked enough, Krishna will come back and set things right, according to them. Mm. But they also have a date for the life of Krishna, Krishna which is based um, on their, uh, you know, their research into their ancient texts. They believe that Krishna was killed in 3102 B.C., and that was the mark. That was the beginning point of their Kali Yuga era. So that's another foreshadowing of this potential event, the sacrifice of Nimrod. Hmm. Yes, the shadow yes. on her legacy. Yes. Well, uh, Krishna was a hunter who who was killed at that at that particular date. Hmm. Now, if we go to uh, the historical record of ancient Egypt, it seems that King uh, Menes, the very first one on this uh, the the king's list, if we date him historically, he lines up to about 3100 B.C. Hmm. So wow. we do have a lot of tie-ins there, hmm. and uh, so now this is going to make a lot of people uh, excited. But let me just say it: if 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 this particular date of December 21, 2012, uh, is fulfilled by anything, then the only thing that I could see it fulfilling is that that being the date when the abyss is opened. Okay, mm-hmm. but what that means is that all this other stuff begins earlier. Okay? Mm-hmm. Everything has to precede that because that's well into the day of the Lord. Just like Kenneth Anger, the great occultist follower of, follower of Aleister Crowley, shows in his movie mm-hmm. uh, about Lucifer, Lucifer Rising, Lucifer Rising, where he shows yeah. uh, uh, Osiris uh, basically calling forth Horus, which is right. what they look for is the rising of Horus, the powerful right. god, right. and that when that happens, he comes out of the Great Pyramid, and you see UFOs flying UFOs. over his head. That's right. This is back in 1968. <laughs> yes, hey, speaking yes. of movies, if I could get a quick comment from you before we wrap up. Mm-hmm. Um, I have just uh, learned about a, an urgently awaited movie that's just getting ready to come out in February, I believe, called Watchmen. And it's based on an award-winning comic book series from the mid-'80s. Uh, and it includes a Nimrod-type superhero figure who sees himself as some kind of immortal conqueror and dresses in a horse-type garb. Mm-hmm. And he uses his optimal intellect and his worldwide power, uh, he's recognized as the most perfect human specimen on Earth, and that he releases a genetically engineered series of creatures that kill millions of people in the major cities, and he does that to try to unite the world's superpowers to avert nuclear war and save Earth. So he sacrifices these millions to get them all together and save the world. Now, the good superheroes find out about it and try to stop this plan, but he convinces them to let it happen. For the greater good, it would be good, and the betterment of mankind. And there's one sort of an ethical purist kind of superhero who who insists on telling the truth at all costs, so they kill him. The other, the other quote, good guys kill him. Now, this highly acclaimed comic book series, I did some more research on it. It was written by this enigmatic guy by the name of Alan Moore, who's a British gentleman who I just found out is an enthusiastically practicing occultist and magician. And uh, he pro- he uh, publishes various magical grimoires and workings, and he says he worships the serpent god Glycon in oh. real life. Now he also wrote V for Vendetta, which is a very popular movie that was just out, and a number of other popular works. Do you, I, mean, I find some interesting parallels with what you just told us here, as far as yeah. a message being placed upon yeah. the people. Yeah. Do you think the emergence of more sagas and legends like this in our media will prepare the masses for the yeah, unveiling of Antichrist? I, I, I really do. I think just brace yourselves for more of this because yeah. this whole, you know, this whole concept of a universal dying and rising figure, it's like it's like there's a, 
whole underground uh, subculture, this stream of thought that is throughout pagan religion, throughout New Age teaching, throughout secret societies. And the whole world expects it. So absolutely, the way is going to be prepared. Now, Johnny the Longshoreman sent me a, a short thing on, on this other video that's already out, av available for rental now. It's called 10,000 B.C., and it's about this, uh, this like hunter-gatherer type, this hero in the far distant past, and it's talking about, it, it, it details his life and his struggles, and, but it ends with this Nimrod figure as the king of Egypt. So that's another interesting tie-in. Amazing, amazing, and we're going to see yeah, more and more of this. Uh, have there been any other news stories or any other kind of events that you've seen in the last year or so since your last visit with us that you have found very significant that you haven't had a chance to share with us in the past? Well, there's, I've... I've kind of haven't paid too much attention to what's going on. I heard there was an election or something, uh, and we have a new president or something. Well, um, actually, we, we just saw Mrs. Future and I saw on TV, he now has a new logo, and it's called the Office of the President-Elect, which okay. I didn't know that office actually existed, an yeah. office of the President-Elect. Well, it, it doesn't elect, and he can't call himself that until the... The, the electoral college. Electoral college officially but, votes him in. I so, think. anyway, that's, that's my two cents on it. He's he's eager, if anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, as far as uh, other things going on, I I keep my eye on on what's happening in Egypt. There's there's always new things going on in Egypt. Uh, uh, you know, they built this this enclosure around the whole Giza complex, which is a just a huge uh, fortified concrete wall with uh, with uh, steel wire on the top. It's like they have totally enclosed this complex, and and they've really ruined it for the local people there who'd like to mm -hmm. ride in on camels and make money off the tourists. Now everything is totally state-controlled. It's a very controlled environment. It's almost as if, as if they want to, you know, prepare themselves for for some sort mm -hmm. of uh, earth-shattering discovery that's going to be presented. So if we hear uh, Geraldo Rivera heading over that way, uh, pretty soon, or National Geographic. I was wondering. Hold on to your hat. Yeah. Hold on. Well, I was well, saying he always <laughs> opens them up. Yeah. He opens up the stuff. He know? seems to be the guy that the that the you know the the top leaders of the world always go to. So. And Zawi Hawass, yeah. the uh, the head of Egyptian antiquities, mm -hmm. the yeah. famous Zawi Hawass. Uh, Brother Peter, we all want to know what kind of projects you may be considering or have in store in the future. That's probably what a lot of our listeners have been waiting for the last hour and a half for. What can you tell us? What's what's on uh, your mind? I I gotta I gotta keep my mouth shut, but uh, but all I know is next. Do you year have a gun? Do you exciting. have a gun to your head, brother <laughs> Peter? If you do, use some code word. Yeah. <laughs> if if you're being held against your will. Well, I I want to uh, I want to write some more. I do, but I've got a I got uh, family things going on. I'm, right now I'm I'm coaching flag football with my son. He's ten years old. We're we're having a lot of fun doing that. Uh, but I'm trying to get involved more more locally in the church, you know. I'm trying to praise the Lord. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I want to encourage that for everybody. Even if you're absolutely. a genius like Peter Goodgame, and you're like 500 steps ahead of everybody, uh, you still it's it's an act of humility and servanthood to get involved in your local church. Yeah, and that's you will right. grow. You will grow in your own way. You will find revelations there that you wouldn't have had. Yeah, that's, and that's true right. for every yeah. one of us listening. Yeah, because that's that's what it's all about. Because uh, Times are coming. There's going to be amazing things that are going to, going to, you know, shake the world. People are going to be, going to be amazed at what happens in these next few years. I believe, um, but uh, we, as the body of Christ, we we got to be ready to to represent Christ to them. And uh, you know, I'm not a 
I'm not like a, a dominionist. I don't believe that the body of Christ has a mandate to to take over the governments of the world, to pass laws, to change the way people act. I don't I don't believe in that. But I do believe in having as an individual. We need to kind of have a dominionist mindset because because we have been given all authority. We, our job is to destroy the works of the devil here on earth in our in our in our community. We just we, don't need have, the state. We don't need the state to do that. That's we, right. we have authority through the kingdom of heaven to completely right. stay out of that world. That's right. I mean, you know, Jesus said that uh, that that as the Father sent him, he he sends us and and we need to we need to get back to the promises in the Bible of, of who we are supposed to be. We need to stand on those Go and act in faith because I, it's not all doom and gloom because I really believe that, uh, that, uh, there is a, a segment of the church. It might not be an overwhelming segment, but there's going to be a portion of the church that rises up in revival as all these things mm-hmm. start to happen, you know, who are able to truly represent Christ as he is to the world, to the people that need him so much. Well, I will tell you that that your work has brought me closer to Christ and brought me closer to the Bible. Praise God. And I thank you for that. I think that's a job well done for somebody who's using their talents. That's the most uh, important compliment I can ever get. Is there any, you can't give us any kind of hint on anything on your mind or anything? Do do you have anything in the back of your mind you're mulling? Oh, as far as my projects? Well, I'd like to... I'd like to do another uh, a book on Bible prophecy, and, and I'd like to write a book that, that kind of condenses all of this uh, all of this Antichrist stuff into one volume. Okay. Because <laughs> right. you know I can I can teach the identity of the Antichrist just with the Bible alone. I can explain to people how it all works out. But mm-hmm. then when you bring in all this other stuff, it just it's it's overwhelming. It's sure. overwhelming. Sure, and we've only scratched the surface. Ladies That's and right. gentlemen, you need to get the book Red Moon Rising. Go to his website. And in conclusion, in our last uh, minute, minute and a half, can you tell our listeners how to get your book and uh, find out more about your readings? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Amazon.com has my book uh, Red Moon Rising, and uh, I don't promote it uh, anywhere other than my website or, or through good good people, good shows like Future Quake here. Um, but I've been blessed because of the last uh, three months I sold more books than any other quarter before. So, uh, wow. you know, That's it's getting out, and I'm and I'm pleased. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, this this whole last year has just been. Uh, God kind of told me I, I I'm I'm digging into this deep dark stuff, and I need to I need to step back and take a breath, and I need to get closer to Him because yeah. if you don't know the true Messiah, you can know all the you can have all the knowledge about the Antichrist in the world. But if you don't know the truth, who cares? You got to know. People got to get closer to Jesus. A daily, a daily relationship. Absolutely. Well, you hit the nail on the head. We have a lot of great authors and writers, not on just this show, but a whole lot of similar kind of shows on the web and elsewhere, that really go into the deep stuff and they're intrigued by it, but they don't take their head back out of it for a while and just do the regular day-to-day serving with their fellow brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And I think that's as important a message for you to give to them because they respect you as it is your other research and writing. So Yeah, it's, uh, it's very important. That there's so many Christians out there that their mind is puffed up with all their Bible knowledge, and, and they need to humble themselves, and they need to understand that they need to have a, a heart relationship you know, with, with Lord Jesus Christ. And they also, they also need to have a heart relationship with their brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so very important because 
only with that kind of connection with each other are we going to be able to bring the revival that I believe is going to come before it's all said and done. Well, that's a perfect way to end our show. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a great Okay, we'll look forward to having you back soon. We're back at the Future Quake show with Dr. Future and Tom, Tom, Tom Bionic. I, I interrupted you improvising. I apologize for that no, in the beginning. Cool. Anything you want to improvise? Thank you for Dr. Future. <laughs> <laughs> we already had music the first day. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, uh, sorry. We're here with uh, we were we were listening to Peter Goodgame here on our Thursday uh, edition. Yeah, uh, we talked a little bit. He got into Matthew twenty four a little bit and about uh, kingdom rising against kingdom and nation against mm-hmm. nation and stuff. Signs uh, in the end. Yeah, uh, we also talked a little bit about the coming of the Antichrist and how it. He feels that it's going to be a supernatural thing. It's, right. It's it's really like it'll be really apparent. It won't be just some guy right. getting some elected. Stru- it'll be, that's right. You know, exactly, as well said. Yeah. yeah. Some guy falling out of the sky or something. Which the Bible says people will be astounded when they see him. Yeah. So um, consider it as food for thought. Mm-hmm. Of all the legions of Peter Good Game people out there, that's no challenge for you all. Sorry we got into all the new stuff we could, but I think he's just sort of spooling up for some new projects. So mm-hmm. bear with us. It's just we all rejoice that he's back. Yes, right, and very, very much so. And speaking of back, we need to have Merv to come back and tell you how to get a hold of us. So, Merv? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we're over time. All right, let's get out of here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Tomorrow's Tomorrow's Tremors. And until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Mahalo. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake. Welcome to the Friday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I, of course, am Tom Bionic. And um, should I even bother asking you what today is? Today? It's tomorrow's tremors. We're down to like 24 and a half minutes. <laughs> I like how it freaks or you out. Or today's review of the future. Yeah, hey, particularly when a guy's not feeling good. Yeah, I know. That Dr. was actually hitting below the belt. Dr. Future is sort of in a semi-catatonic state today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with... I think, I don't know what I've got, Ebola or something. Yeah. I'm feeling horrible. My I can't hear through my ears very well. I've got lots of... No, don't, I pretend <laughs> like you're talking. He's messing with my mind here. Yeah. Uh, I'm on lots and lots and lots of medication right yeah. now. Not expensive, feeling good. Expensive medication, too. I huh? need a hug. Oh, I'm sorry. Whew, it's, it's just not going oh, over man. here at the future house. Yeah. Not feeling too good at all. Well, we've got some news to do, but some of the biggest news that I want to point people to is to the front of futurequake.com. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you need to go right to the front. You know, we always have news announcements, whether it's a new documentary night or mm-hmm. something new that's going on an event. You need to check that regularly. Well, right now, uh, 
we have a, a picture of this amazing uh, young gentleman who's on the front uh, who has a tremendous CD that he's produced. And uh, it's our own Tom Bionic. Yeah, you know, I had produced a CD, and I just had a box of them laying around. And we talked about it, and he said, well, why don't we just, you know, there's some Tom Bionic fans out there. And uh, I am going under my stage name there of uh, Mike Tater. Uh-huh. Um, but you'll see it there. It's up there. And uh, if if you uh, feel so inclined, you can click on it and uh It goes right it straight to ordering it. Yep, right to the right to the little ordering bin there. Uh, if you want to go to... We just thought people might like it because we've mentioned you're... In, you do instruments and things all along, mm-hmm. and if people are just curious about it, a lot of, yep. a lot more people like you than they like me on the show. Oh, you know, I don't know about that. Attention. Yeah, you're you're the so play-by-play guy. I'm you just have color your man. cult following. In fact, Obama only wishes people liked him as much. Well, as you they really like are you. sick. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, so you're delusional. Now, all of you devotees to Tom Bionic can go hear his sultry tones. Yeah, me and my sitar jams. Hey, do you, in 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 addition to and, and really, he is a. Uh, world-class fiddle player, and you'll love to hear him play. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you do some vocals, too? I do. Uh, there's some singing on there. I play fiddle and guitar. I also play some, uh, um, a little bit of mandolin there. Uh, I produced the whole album, and I actually recorded a half of it at an undisclosed location in the middle of the northern Pacific Ocean. In the middle of the ocean? Yes. Really? Really. Hmm. Well, you know, you have been to Bohemian Grove, so I guess I've been to Bohemian Grove. Been all over. Was it like an atoll somewhere? No. Okay. Wow. Did Did your instrument get wet? No. Okay. Wow, that's very interesting. Hey, I have a request for your next uh, production. What's that? Would you do a bluegrass version of the Future Quake theme? Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be really neat. That's you know we could think about that. Think about that. I mean, because you know we've played the banjo version of the Star Trek theme on Future Quake. Yeah, and even under my thumb. So well, we got why not. Well, for 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 John the Longshoreman, maybe we could do a banjo version of Carnival of Souls. I think that'd be a great idea. Yeah. Hey, Johnny, if you're out there listening, good to. Good to have you along with us, yep. and I guess we should uh, pay attention to the rest of our listeners uh, right now. But anyway, check out the front of futurequake.com. Uh, you'll have some wonderful tunes mm-hmm. uh, from our own Tom Bionic there, so just click that yeah. on the front, and we've got stories to do. Well, uh, thank you so much for that little that little plug of my No my problem. I, I, why don't you go first? Well, thank Hit you, Hit us sir. up there. Okay. I've tried to have a, a little grab bag of things here. Mm-hmm. It's a story that just came out. From uh, Business and Media Research Center, GOP warns of riots if bailouts pass. Uh, GOP senators warn of riots if automakers bailed out. Uh, Senator Jim DeMint says unfair union influence and bailout culture will anger many Americans. Time and again, we've heard about the lost jobs and economic impact of failing to bail out the beleaguered American auto manufacturers. But little mention has been made of the consequences of going through with the bailout. Uh, and how such an action could, would be viewed by other Americans. In an interview following a December 10th press conference, um, where he and four other senators aired their opposition to the proposed bailout deal struck by congressional leaders in the White House, uh, Senator Jim DeMint, a uh, Republican from South Carolina, warned that the perception that some industries are being bailed out and some aren't could lead to violence. So let me get this straight. What they're saying here, what the GOP is saying is, very much sort of a reflection, uh, although an inverse reflection of what what was being said behind closed doors with the first bailout. 
that there's going to be all sorts of chaos. If well, this is a minority of the of the hmm. Republicans. This well. is not the quote official position. This is just a significant minority, and evidently now um, they will either have filibustered or not when this uh, show airs. Yeah. But um, at the time of where us recording the show, it appears they have enough to filibuster and kill this. Wow. So it's a minority, but a distinct minority. Uh, but he, uh, he says that we're going to have riots. There are already people rioting because they're losing their jobs when everyone else is being bailed out. The fairness of it becomes more and more evident as we go along. The auto companies may be hurting, he said, but there are very few companies that aren't hurting, and they're going to hurt. We don't have enough money to bail everyone out. Hmm. Do you meant blame the unions for pushing this issue as far as it has gotten? The senator said the notion that reorganization under bankruptcy would not work was generated by the unions for fear of losing their power. Well, I think that they should bail out uh, Tom Bionic. Yeah. Just give me, instead of giving them Why don't you fly billion, your private plane in up there to testify? I can't. I'll drive. I'll drive, and I'll drive a I'll drive a Jeep Cherokee. Yeah, but you're not too big enough not to fail. I don't know if I keep eating like I have <laughs> in the last couple of weeks. Well, <clears throat> I tell you, uh, I mean, it may be scary what this guy's saying, but I, I think somebody who I heard put it to best was Jim uh, was uh, Krauthammer, uh, mm-hmm. Charles Krauthammer, who said that what they're basically asking for are for the average American who makes on average eighteen dollars an hour. To bail out the average auto worker who currently makes twenty-eight dollars an hour. I'll give you an even better one. Uh, you didn't like that one, I thought. No, that was a good one. That well, was a just, very good you one. You just dissed me with that. Z snap time. <laughs> okay, give me All the right. better one. Toyota and GMC last year sold about the same amount of cars. Toyota turned a profit. GMC didn't. Huh. Think about the implications of that. Well, I have I have the ready-made answer. They'll say. That they do they have nationalized health care in Japan? I don't know. Because that's probably they don't have to pay for that, whereas we have to pay for all the health care. Oh, really? Well, you know what? Tough patoots. Watch you your a, language. You have a you have a, a failing business model, and you should fail. Mm-hmm. You know that's what it comes down to. Well, you know the thing is, um, if money is taken. If money is given to them, it's taken from somebody else. Yeah. And it will eventually be money didn't come out of thin air. It's taken and through higher taxes or for whatever purpose, someone else will have to lay off other people. Mm-hmm. So like you say, people who maybe otherwise would have a working model now have to lay off people to take care of the ones who have a non-functioning model. You're right. It, and it, it's not to pick on the auto industry. That's to any industry who goes sure. through what's an artificial right. Anytime, well, it comes down to the fact that any time that you give money to somebody who's going to spend it unwisely, you've made, uh, you've taken, you've essentially destroyed the productive capacity of that of that money. You know, you give it to somebody who's going to not do anything with it, then nothing's going to get done. You give it to somebody who can be productive with it, productivity happens. Uh-huh. Giving money to uh, um, giving money to car companies that can't compete in in the national on their own home turf here in the United States, uh, you're destroying that money. Well, you know, I thought I had the ultimate answer for this. Um, Bail out Doctor Future. Well, I mean that would be nice, but. Um, I thought the ultimate answer is, first of all, the UAW said, and they testified, they have a, they have $1 billion in uh, strike funds. They're wow. setting on it. They're just setting on it. Why don't they take that money as a down payment to let the UAW 
by the automakers. Then what they could do is take part of their salary and defray part of that to pay off creditors over time. Mm-hmm. And in that way, there's no, not going to be any kind of he said, she said between labor and management. They're all one thing. So ultimately, they have to come up with a number for their labor and other yeah. operations to be able to function and thrive. Well, I think that would be a great thing. You know, uh, potentially Southwest, uh, the airline, is uh-huh. owned by a great majority of, of the people that work for it. Uh-huh. So, uh, And they're a very productive company. They're one of the only companies that uh-huh. made it through completely unscathed the whole gas price explosion uh-huh. that we had about six months ago. But, y- y- you know, they, they always point the finger at each other. Mm-hmm. Management points out that labor's unfair, vice versa. Yeah. But just Just... Give it to the UAW, or don't give it to them. Make them pay mm-hmm. for it, and then let them figure out. Well, look, we got to get our books balanced. Nobody's hiding the information. You know, they're they're responsible for the well-being of the workers. Mm-hmm. You figure out what can do it to make it work. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. and if they have to lay people off, it'll be hey, we we, we know at least it has to be done if we're yeah. going to survive. Yeah. I to mean that's the only natural way these kind of things are going to finally work. Well, yeah, of course, but the way that society and we've we've talked around this point a little bit, but never expressed it quite succinctly like this and maybe it's just my opinion uh feel free to disagree with me but i think that the way things are being structured now is uh there's a concerted effort to take away the vote and the power of the individual individual rights in general uh of the of the average citizen and hand that to ultra large corporations and politicians yeah that's been ongoing for a long time yeah in fact to the point where when individual citizens sends faxes in emails and things like that, saying, please don't vote for a bailout. They, they don't probably even ignore listen. it. They don't even listen. Well, it, but the real chumps are the uh, citizens who then vote those people right in. Mm-hmm. I know. Okay. So I guess who's, a jo- who's the joker? That's right. Who's the greater fool? Um, and uh, uh, along those lines, here's a very interesting way to on how to combat a banking crisis. First, round up all the pessimists. Uh, Latvian agents detain a gloomy economy. Latvia in the country of yeah, Latvia. Yeah. Uh, calling it uh, uh, a form of deterrence. In Raja Latvia uh, is where the story is centered. We're talking about the country of Latvia, not here. Although, I'm sure it's coming soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, hammered by economic woe, their for- this former Soviet republic recently took a novel step to contain the crisis. Its counter-espionage a- agency busted an economist for being too downbeat. All I did was say what everyone knows, said Dimitris Smirnovs. Ah, man. Easy for you to say. Smirnovs. I think it's Smirnovs. Smirnovs. That's what we're going You're with. not having like a petite mall now, are you? No, I don't think okay. so. Um, a 32-year-old university lecturer detained by Latvia's secret, secret police. The force is responsible for hunting down spies, terrorists, and other threats to this Baltic nation of 2.3 million people and 26 banks. Now free after two days of questioning, Mr. Smimoffs hasn't been charged, but he is still under investigation for badmouthing the stability of Latvia's banks and the national currency. Uh, the Latvian investigators suspected him of spreading untruthful information. They've ordered him not to leave the country and have seized his computer. Huh. There you have it. I mean, you know, gosh. That evil negative computer. Yeah. How, how dare he speak the truth? Finance is highly is a highly touchy subject in Latvia, one that the state tries with unusual zeal to shield from loose tongues. 
it is a criminal offense here to spread untrue data or information. Wow. I hope Goldman Sachs doesn't get his way over there uh, about the country's financial system. Undermining it is outlawed as subversion. So they're serious about their about their banks. That's just like a, a, a like a hairline away from political oppression. Oh yeah, this is it's like saying, "Well, you said something bad about our government, therefore you're sure." This is this is very very close to um, you know like um, 1984 mm-hmm. and you know Anne Rand and what what they're trying to make it out to be that it's like yelling fire in a theater. Yeah, like you're, you're yelling some kind of panic, terrible thing, and you're going to create a disaster of people. Yeah. But basically what it becomes is that uh, anything you say negative, you say it about the economy, it's an extension of the government. Yeah. So it's almost like being a political prisoner. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yep. I think the most extreme case I heard about that in the recent news was in Poland, where, and this is a strange story, they were, they were interviewing some guy on the street, and he said, here's what I think, I think it's Poland, think about the prime minister, and he he passed some gas, his flatulence. <laughs> they arrested him for that. Wow. He was doing it like a political statement, you know. That's and they arrest. I, I mean, I don't know if there's a law on the book specifically about that, but they arrested him for it. Well, if you walk so, around, so I mean, there's no telling what you can get arrested for these well, days. Well, if you walk, if you walked around downtown Krakow for any length of time, you've noticed that the, everybody drives diesel vehicles there, and it's very, it's like whoa, you know, a lot of diesel in the air. So huh. I don't think that would be. You're, it's not a pleasant place, aromatically, yeah. anyway. You say. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be as offensive as as you would think, huh. but. You know, my two cents. So, when the global financial system began to buckle this autumn, Latvia's security police mobilized to combat destabilizing chatter about banks and exchange rates. Agents directed their attention to Internet chat rooms, newspaper articles, cell phone text messages, and even rock concerts. A popular musician was taken in for questioning after he cracked a joke about unstable Latvian banks at a performance. There's only one problem with all this. Much of the speculative buzz now turns out to be true. After insisting its banking sector was healthy, Latvia last month took over the largest locally owned bank, Parex, to save it from collapse. After denying it needed aid from the International Monetary Fund, the government now is is in talks with the IMF. Finance ministry officials acknowledge that secret police won't save the country from economic crisis but they do believe security police vigilance makes the public think twice before spreading uninformed gossip about banks. Huh. You know, oh. like truth. Well, what was that guy's name again that did it? Um, the guy that they arrested? Yeah. His name was Dmitris Smirnovs. Okay. I just wanted to hear you say his last name again. Yeah. It's actually, it's, it's, an, it's in little type here, but you'll yeah. notice they have a picture of him here. Yeah. Uh, and the yeah, picture. I'm sure our listeners can notice that. Yeah. I'd like to direct your everybody's attention to the radio Exhibit where you can a. see the picture. Yes. <laughs> well, to me, the model there is where there's smoke, there's fire. Mm-hmm. If uh, these people are saying there's a problem with something like that, why would we be shocked that it turned out to be true? Well, you know, uh, why does it – and I would just ask the question to our listeners uh, without getting into it because I don't want to get arrested and taken in for questioning. Um, if our – if our uh, Secretary of the Treasury, who, by the way, doesn't have a degree in finance, he has a degree in English from Dartmouth um, uh-huh. and a master's degree in business administration from Harvard, um, has to appear on Face the Nation and tell us our banking our banking system is completely sound. Uh, 
just think about the ramifications of that. I just printed off today a long, long list of Bernanke, Hank Paulson, all these guys over the last few years, and their statements were the exact opposite. They were saying back at well, in Greenspan at the end of 2006, mm-hmm. we've hit a bottom in the housing market. Mm-hmm. This was in 2006. It's going to go straight up from here. Uh, same thing like you said about the banking industry. Mm-hmm. One absolute untruth after another, this long list that I've compiled. And so the model becomes, why do we ever believe anything they say other than the opposite? Yeah, pretty much if they're saying it. Well, at this point, and uh, I don't know if we'll get to it today, but uh, William Poole, the uh, uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman for the Branch Bank of St. Louis, uh-huh. uh, which is, is 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 the primary data collection point. You know, it's right. where they publish all the stuff. It's where the brain is. Uh-huh. Uh, now says that uh, Ben Bernanke is essentially acting as an un- unregulated agency. Now he's doing his own thing. Whoa. Yeah, he said, I have no input. He said, I don't have any input anymore into what's going on. Bernanke's calling all the shots uh, and not listening to the to the board of the, you know, the board. Yeah, yeah. so he's he's yeah. uncontrolled. Yeah, he said it's it's completely out of control. Well, thanks for that cheery thought. Well, can I, can I pick, us, pick us up a little bit with a pick quick story up. here toward the end? Mm-hmm. Israel ready to attack Iran alone. Oh, this yeah, that's a big happy From the Times Online yeah. over in Britain, um, mm-hmm. pre- uh, President Ahmadinejad of Iran announces an expansion of his country's nuclear program as Natanz Richmond facility. Uh, President Ahmadinejad has defi- defied the West by continuing to rich uranium. Uh, Israel is drawing up plans to attack Iran's nuclear facilities and is prepared to launch a strike without backing from the U.S., it has been reported. Officials in the Israeli Defense Ministry told the Jerusalem Post that while they prefer to act in consultation with the U.S., they were preparing plans that would allow them to act in isolation. Mm. It's always better to coordinate, a senior defense ministry official told the newspaper, but we are also preparing options that do not include coordination. However, defense officials played down the report today, telling the Times an attack by Israel forces alone would probably fail to take out all of Iran's nuclear facilities. I don't know. Those Iranians are are uh, uh, remarkably resourceful. Well, I say now that they would or, fail to take them all out. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah. the Israelis are remarkably yeah. resourceful. Yeah, which experts say are scattered across several sites, some deep underground. We could not risk an operation which would only partially succeed, one defense official told the Times. That would leave us open to a nuclear attack from Iran's remaining weapon stock. Israel would likely need to support the backing of forces from a Western ally to successfully carry out the operation. A senior uh, Israeli official quotes the Jerusalem Post that while it would be difficult, it would not be impossible to launch a strike against Iran without permission from the U.S. There are a wide range of risks one takes when embarking on such an operation. Uh, the U.S. Air Force controls the Iraqi airspace. Israeli jets would have to cross on a bombing mission, and access to codes from the Americans would significantly improve Israel's chances of a successful strike in Iran, an official told the Times. He added that because the Iranians have been moving into bunkers deep underground, sophisticated weaponry would be needed to successfully destroy the facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, responding to reports that Israel would use low-yield nuclear bunker busters. Great. The official said the method was largely speculative and unreliable. nuclear strike. Yeah, Ehud Olmert, uh, the prime minister, has reportedly asked the U.S. for a green light to attack Iranian facilities as recently as May. Uh, according to Israeli officials, the U.S. denied the request. 
although it outfitted Israel with X-band radar systems, which would shave several crucial minutes off Israeli's reaction time to an Iranian missile launch and allow the United States to oversee Israeli's airspace. Mm. So there's always an option of Israel going alone. It just does not seem like a good option at the present time, an Israeli MP said. Uh, there are three central locations where they believe the Iranian facilities are producing goods for nuclear weapons. Uh, I'm skipping down here. Uh, Israeli officials said they're hardened that uh, international sanctions were having an effect. They didn't feel like enough was to stop their ambitions. Um, The most recent Israeli intelligence reports estimate that Iran will have enough enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon in late 2009, barring any interruptions in this program. There's still time and no need to rush into operation right now. Uh, the regime there is already falling apart and is likely no longer to be in power 10 years from now. Uh, Tehran uh, dismissed the possibility of a strike, saying it didn't take Israel seriously. Hmm. We think that regional and international developments and the complicated situation faced by Israel itself will not allow it to launch military strikes against other countries, from the Iranian foreign ministry, adding that Israel makes threats to promote its psychological and media warfare. Uh, some Israeli security officials fear that the Iranian retaliation for a strike on its facilities could include a large-scale missile attack on Israel from several Iranian allies, disruption of oil supplies to the West, and terror attacks against Jewish targets from around the world. Sorry, I read to that quickly. I knew our time was short. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, one thing, and I'll mention something that's uh, a little personal, but I think people should pray about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in some of my private work, I'd be, be making a trip over there in January, yeah. and particularly in a particularly dangerous area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my first time to be over there, and it, it could not happen. But if it does, yeah. I sure appreciate everybody's prayers for yeah. old Doc. Yeah, he's going He's going to a place uh, where it rhymes with lowland mites. <laughs> Boy, you're, you're just like the Enigma code. Yes. It's just very, very hard to break. Yeah, well, that one's pretty easy. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, anyway, I sure would appreciate prayers. We're yeah. getting at about the last minute and a half. Any closing thoughts? You know, I'm, I'm just I'm just tired of such all the bad stuff happening. Just weary. Yeah, I'm just a little weary about it. You know, I need to marry rich and then not have to worry. You know, just kind of live in a big mansion and you know eat steak every day. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, if any any extremely well-to-do Futurian. Single women are listening. Is that yeah, what you're suggesting? Yeah, yeah. Is that why you've been doing Future Quake all this time? It's just a. It's for the chicks. Meet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's for the chicks. I feel used. Oh, uh, sorry. Well, <laughs> they couldn't find a better man than Tom Bionic. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. that that's in my book, and yeah. uh, I don't know if that's what the Lord has for you, but I, I wish you happiness in this upcoming year. Yeah. Well, As we'll we're wrapping this one up, it's 2009. It's going to be a. It's going to be a bumper. Pretty, I think, a pretty cataclysmic year. It's going to be a mess, I think, as yeah. well. We'll be here week by week mm-hmm. talking with you about all the issues that up. And, you know, uh, if you want to share with us what you think uh, about what's important, what's going on, let us know about a guest, whatever, uh, you can contact us, and Merv is going to tell you how to get a hold of us. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. 
Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. Uh, last 30 seconds. Folks, we've been so, it's been so nice to be with you here this week. And uh, until next time, we hope your future is very bright. And we'll be having, in just a couple of weeks, having our annual prediction show. Oh, that's right, yeah. And uh, you'll really enjoy it. We'll have some of the favorites uh, coming mm-hmm. on our show. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this week with Peter Goodgame. It was wonderful to have him back again. Yeah. It was just such a real treat, and we hope to have him back soon. So till then, it is official. We yeah. hope your future is bright. Until next week, have a good day. Uh, Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake. There are new dreams crowding out old realities. There's revolution sweeping like a fresh new breeze.